I think because people aren't really talking about this or writing about it all that much, some of the knowledge, I think, has kind of fell through the cracks. It's not all that great. And that's not just anecdotally. We've looked at this. What matters first is who's going to use it and what will it be used for? But I think if you're not paternalistic in this regard, you're actually failing the healthcare system. What you're really looking for is something that looks the same every single time you see them do it. A lot's changed, and there's a lot of misconceptions that we need to clear the air on. January. Welcome to the January 2022 EM Wrap, EM Reviews and Perspectives. This is Swami, and I'm here with Jan Schoenberger. Jan, Happy New Year. Happy New Year, everybody. I can't believe it's 2022. It's a fresh start. I love the beginning of a new year. Are you a uh, resolution kind of person? No. I have to be honest. I'm, I'm <laughs> like really it. not. I am, I am a reflection kind of person, so I do spend time, you know, as years end and start uh, to reflecting on my past year and kind of thinking forward, but I don't make promises because often I can't keep those promises. So <laughs> I, just, I just try to be optimistic for the next year. I kind of feel the same way, Jan. I feel like instead I want to look back on what the year was like and then think about what I want to change, but not not these hard goals that I'm going to fix. Because, you know, I agree with you. I think we we, we set our that bar too high and then we peter out after two weeks. Yeah. Yeah. I'm all well-intentioned the first week or two, but, you know, then life sets in and I can't be as idealistic. So, you know, just hope for the best. All right. I, I think it sounds good. I, I like this. We're going to get into the new year having reflected but not setting goals for ourselves that we can't humanly accomplish. I like it. We're, we're not setting the bar low. We're setting the bar where it should be. <laughs> That's right. All right. Well, Jan, I got a case for you. And uh, this is a case I actually saw in our super track area. You ready? I'm ready. The case. All right. So I got a 20-year-old woman who presents with a chief complaint of shortness of breath. The chief complaint from the nursing triage note says that the patient feels short of breath for the last couple of weeks, but it's increased over the last couple of days. Her vital signs on the board are pretty good. Heart rate's 82, BP 110 over 65, SAT is 96%. She is afebrile. She has no past medical history, no meds. She's a non-smoker, no drug use. And when I look through her records, I see that she has been seen by her primary doctor in the past for shortness of breath. She's been in the ED for shortness of breath. And it looks like there's been some workup done. And at the end of it, she was told, maybe you're just anxious. And she's placed into that fast track area. And honestly, the person who brings her back kind of gives me a little eye roll, a little eye roll from triage. What else do you want to know before you go into that room or as you're seeing that patient? Okay, so you're telling me that triage doesn't think much of it. And usually, you know, I, I usually trust my triage nurses. They tend to put the more experienced nurses there. So I tend to put some credit into what they think. So I'm, I'm weighing that. But I also want to be careful about not being too biased. So I assume she looks otherwise well, but I, I want to confirm that. So tell me a little bit about what her exam is like. It's really an unremarkable exam, Jan. I understand exactly why she was placed into a fast track area. She's well appearing. She's not tachypnic. Her cardiac exam is unremarkable. Her lungs are completely clear on auscultation. She's got no leg swelling. It's pretty much an unremarkable exam. Okay. So at this juncture, I have an unremarkable exam. I have a young woman who's telling me she's short of breath. So I have to make a decision. Am I going to just blow all this off and do very little? Or do I fight my bias and clear my mind and start from scratch and dig into the history a little more and maybe do some other kind of more sophisticated exam maneuvers like maybe walk her, see if she desats or look short of breath with exertion? And that's probably where I would go next. I think a lot of us are going to feel this pull in that case where 
These fast track patients are coming, you move through them pretty quickly. And we feel that pull to be like, nah, she's already seen a bunch of doctors. She's fine. But we also know in the back of our head somewhere is maybe there really is something and we've missed it. And now we have an opportunity to catch it. And I like that idea of the walk test because maybe that's the issue. And I ask her, do you only feel short of breath when you exert yourself? She's like, well, I always feel short of breath, but it's definitely worse when I walk around. So I'm like, well, let's go take a walk. And Jan, I used to work in an inner city emergency department where the whole footprint of the emergency department was like a hundred meters. So it was pretty small. You couldn't really get a good walk test. Now I'm in the burbs and we got a huge area to walk around. So I walk her around this department and she looks short of breath. She's a little to Kipnik after we finish that walk test. There's no desaturation, but there's clearly something different when she walks. And now I have something objective. We've got these vague complaints, normal vital signs, normal exam. But now I have this one little thing to focus on that's an objective finding, which is that she becomes to Kipnik when she walks. Now you're telling me she's got ob- objective shortness of breath, not just subjective shortness of breath, but it's exertional. So you've got some exertional tachypnea, but you also told me she has clear lungs. So as I process that, I'm thinking about some specific things on my differential. I'm thinking about anemia, of which I could get a point of care hemoglobin and, and think about pretty quickly. I'm thinking about obviously cardiovascular things. So I'm thinking about PE rises very high on the top of my list. I'm thinking about things like tamponade and ultrasound will help me look at that. She's only 20. So although I have to consider acute coronary syndrome, I'm thinking about that, but that's a little lower down. I'm thinking about those acid-base disorders that can also affect your rate of breathing. So maybe she's acidotic. Maybe she's got a metabolic acidosis with a compensatory respiratory alkalosis kind of picture. Could she have something like pulmonary hypertension or is this just really anxiety? So that's kind of what I'm thinking. I think it's a good thought process because when you look at shortness of breath, there's so much on that list, pneumonia, asthma, pneumothorax. There's so many things to consider. But when you pair shortness of breath and clear lungs, you get a much more finite differential. It's one of my favorite differentials to work through. Shortness of breath, clear lungs, and you hit everything. Anemia, tamponade, PE, ACS, that metabolic acidosis with respiratory alkalosis, pulmonary hypertension, anxiety. And I know you just stated it. I'm restating it because it is a discrete differential that we can work through relatively rapidly. Like you said, with some point of care stuff, we can get a CBC, we can get an ECG, we can get a troponin if we think that ACS is at play. A lot of these things we can do pretty quickly. That metabolic acidosis, in my experience, Jan, most of those patients look a little sicker. They're like a little tachypnic at baseline, like even when they're resting. You think about that DKA patient or the aspirin overdose. And then I can do a quick point of care ultrasound and look for tamponade. So there's a lot of stuff that we can do in a very short period of time to try to narrow this down. Yeah, I agree. I like when things are very point of care focused because I can get through them quickly. I'd add on to that a pregnancy test. Troponin isn't at the top of my list of things to get immediately, but you have to think about things like myocarditis. I'd probably get it. And so tell me about what her point of care ultrasound looked like. What's the POCUS? Hocus pocus. Yeah. And the POCUS is the one that we can get done right away, right? So we bring the machine over, we look, and her RV looks a little bit big, bigger than I thought it would be. It wasn't a massive RV bowing into the LV. But in general, the RV should be smaller than the left ventricle. And that's not what I saw here. They look to be about the same size. And I thought, well, you know what? Maybe I've got the probe tilted wrong. Maybe I'm not getting a great image. I tried again and it really looked like the RV was about the same size as the LV. And Jan, that makes me go down that route of, could this be a pulmonary embolism? Now, otherwise she looks pretty low risk. She's not tachycardic. She's not tachypnic at baseline or at rest. She's not hypoxemic. She doesn't have swollen legs. And I'm thinking, should I just jump right to CT with the ultrasound findings I'm seeing, or should I get a dimer? Oh, this is a tough one. So 
you know, here's a 20 year old person from what you've told me, and I'll assume all the risk factors are negative. You know, I would probably want to start with a dimer first, but I would be having that internal conversation with myself. What if it's negative? Would I just stop there? What would I do next? You know, because if I'm not going to stop there, then why get it? But I'd probably go with a dimer first. That's what I thought too. Especially looking at this patient's vital signs and risk factors, I got the dimer and it was slightly elevated. Of course, it was like 510, where you're like, oh, I can't do anything with that. I, I got to go ahead with the CT. But here's the thing, Jan the CTA was negative. So now what? I, I've got this objective finding. She is short of breath. I've got the objective finding of the ultrasound where her RV is enlarged, but there's no PE on CT. And now I'm thinking, you know what? This has been going on for weeks. Maybe this is a chronic change and it's not a PE, but she's got pulmonary hypertension. Well, I have to agree with you. That's definitely what I'm thinking. So at this point, she needs a formal echo is what I'm thinking. Yeah. And, and I hate the term formal echo because it's not like the ultrasound tech puts a bow tie on and a tux. But you're right. I need a, an official echo. I, I need, we, we got to get a better word for this. I, I need a radiology department echo by somebody who can really measure these things better than I can, because maybe my findings are, are incorrect. And, and like I said, maybe I was doing this wrong. I'm not an expert. So I did exactly that. I placed her in observation so she could get a cardiologist echo the next day. And, and I also wanted a cardiologist to see her as well. And the echo confirmed that she had pulmonary hypertension. She had a thick RV that was enlarged, and I didn't catch that, Jan, the fact that the RV was thick, because that tells you that there's a little bit of chronicity to this. This isn't something that just happened. With a PE, you do get RV enlargement, but it tends to not be a thick-walled RV. With pulmonary hypertension that's been going on for a little while, you get that thick RV, and that's what they found on the echo. So they called this pulmonary hypertension. It had been probably going on for a while, and they actually referred her to a right heart specialist, which, Jan... I didn't know this until a couple of years ago, but the cardiologist, they've specialized. Not just, I'm a cardiologist, I'm a right heart specialist. And that's who she went to and probably the right place to go because you need that specialist because pulmonary hypertension, not easy to manage. Yeah, it is not a good diagnosis. We have a pulmonary hypertension clinic. And I remember a couple of years ago, we had the director of that clinic come to our grand rounds and we talked about a case of pulmonary hypertension. And what I remember in my mind, what listening to that rounds was, this is not a good diagnosis and just call the pulmonary hypertension people to help you because it's very complicated. You know, they have to get caths to look at their right heart pressures and there's special drugs that they go on and it's tricky to manage. So yeah, I'm, I'm sorry for this young lady that that's the diagnosis. And what I'm hoping is, is yes, the management of the patient when they are sick with pulmonary hypertension is very complicated and you really do want some backup there. I'm hoping that we caught this early enough that we get her on the right treatment and she improves or at least improves enough to live a relatively normal life. And I think, Jan, that's really kind of what was hammered home in my mind with this case is it's really easy to look at that patient and kind of say, well, listen, three or four doctors have seen you. You look fine. Your vital signs are fine. You're healthy. Go home. You're fine. It's just a little bit of anxiety. And it takes us divorcing ourselves from our biases, that anchoring bias that's already there to kind of disconnect from that and say, well, maybe I got to dive in a little bit further. And obviously we can't always do that because if we dive further on every patient who's been worked up extensively, we're going to do a lot of negative workups that are not helpful. But sometimes there's just something in the back of your head that's kind of gnawing at you. And, and I had that sense with this patient and the test that you said was so important to walk the patient. If they say they're short of breath when they walk, you got to find out, walk them, see what happens. Yeah. The walking test is really important. You know, a lot of people with pulmonary complaints, especially even if after you've done treatments and you know what they have, you know, doing that functional exam before they leave, seeing what they look like when they're actually going to go out in the world and walk and do things, 
can really, you know, sway you one way or the other. So I'm, I'm a big fan of walking people. All right. Well, Jan, I hope that you enjoyed going through this case. I know this is one that I talk with my residents pretty frequently about because I think it's important for us to understand our own biases and really kind of re-examine that patient. And what I always think in the back of my head, Jan, is that it's not just the patient coming back. It's the patient giving me another opportunity to make the diagnosis. <laughs> That's right. I like it. It's the second swing. You know, it's, you know, it's, you got strike one, you go, go for uh, number two and hopefully it turns out better. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's dive into the show a little bit, Jan. I got a couple of highlights, a couple of pieces that I really like this month. Seizure in kids. You know, we've talked about this before. I don't do a ton of pediatrics anymore and I kind of need to know what to do in these cases. And this is a great segment that Jason Woods did with a pediatric neurologist, really hashing out how to take care of these patients in the emergency department. And the other segment I really liked because I hate them is NG tubes. And that was a segment with Justin Morgenstern kind of really getting into the data on whether we should be using NG tubes or not, or where we should be using them. Oh yeah, I'm very passionate in, in, in the anti-NG tube stratosphere. And then the seizures in kids, just a comment on that, because we have done a bunch of pieces on pediatric status epilepticus in the last year or so. This piece is really about, it's not about status epilepticus and it's not about febrile seizures. It's about non-provoked seizures. And I also really found that one educational. My other favorites this month, I really enjoyed the rib fracture piece that Jess Mason did because it's just so common. You know, we are always thinking and looking at patients to consider rib fractures. And then your piece that you did with Scott Weingart about stopping resuscitations, I found really excellent. That's such a hard thing to know. You know, when do I stop? Everyone's got kind of a, a different trigger. So I, I like getting into that one too. And the piece that Jess did was with Ali Raja, who it was great to have him on the show. Ali is, is such a great guy and he's got this dual appointment in both emergency medicine and radiology, such a rare combination. So really nice to hear his take on, on what we should be doing in those rib fracture patients. Absolutely. And then everyone, a plug for our MRAP1 conference, which is coming in Los Angeles in April on the 19th to the 21st. Definitely mark your calendars. We're going to have a very, very unique educational presentation. You're going to love it. But we will have limited in-person attendance. So if you can make it in person, fantastic. Book your seat. But it will be streamed for everyone else as part of your subscription. I can't wait for this, Jan, because it has been a while since we had a live conference. I can't wait to see you and catch up. It's going to be great. It is going to be so much fun. I mean, just to see everybody again and mix and mingle, it just feels like forever since we've done it. It really does. I can't wait. But with that, Jan, we are going to launch into the month. It is the new year. It is the new MRAP for the month. So the ball has dropped and it is time to dive into all of our content. And I'll see you in the mailbag. All right, let's go. Let's take it away. Your hair is winter fire. January embers. My heart burns there too. Rural Medicine Talks. Greetings all and welcome to Rural Medicine. And today I am very lucky to be joined by a guest, someone who's contributed before. And we have Dr. Ben Shepard here with us. Welcome, Ben. Hi, Vanessa. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. And uh, just to remind the listeners, where are you speaking to us from? Yes, yeah, so I work in Northern Australia in a large regional centre. I do a mixture of emergency medicine and pre-hospital and retrieval medicine. And through my career, I've been a bit of a lost child doing, you know, obstetrics and rural medicine and emergency medicine and some other things. And, and still to this day, I don't really know where my future lies. Crikey. Thank you so much for joining us all the way from Northern Australia. And tell me about this case that you had. It ended up being a diagnosis that I've only seen a couple of times. And as I've spoken to other colleagues, it's not something they've had a lot of experience with. So I thought 
it would be you know a useful chat to have. We had a 52 year old lady and in terms of her background she had a history of smoking, some prior illicit drug use but largely had no significant comorbidities. She was brought in by our paramedic staff after being found on the floor of her house and she was complaining of sort of back and flank pain with some pain in her legs but now she had numb legs. Look, when I first saw her, she looked a bit sick, a little bit sort of agitated and tachypneic, but otherwise her vital signs were okay. And, you know, I'm, I'm talking no fever, pulse around 70, blood pressure in the 150s, saturating at, you know, high 90s on room air, but did have a respiratory rate in the low 30s. So I start seeing this lady with my colleague. He was also concerned that she was quite unwell. We did a quick focused exam together, and in terms of her sort of belly and flank pain. She had a largely non-tender and non-peritonitic abdomen, but she couldn't feel or move her legs. Beyond that, her legs also seemed ischemic. They were cold, they were mottled. We couldn't really feel any pulses and we just stopped counting the capillary refill time. It was just so long. So we got a bit more history. The woman had gone to the toilet, developed this sort of sudden onset back and flank pain and then been unable to get off the toilet. She'd fallen onto the floor, dragged herself along through her house to try and get to her phone. And sadly, she'd been on the ground at her home sort of eight to 10 hours before she was able to make a phone call. And, uh, and this is on a background of feeling completely well the day before. Well, this is quite a turnaround for this poor woman, going from being completely well to suddenly being stuck on the floor for hours and unable to feel or move her legs. Now, you mentioned the sort of paralysis certainly sounds like it could be cord-related, something acute has happened, there's no clear trauma. But what's really concerning me here are these sort of cold feet and these, this cap refill that just keeps going and going and going. So what on earth did you make of all this? This is where I got a bit lucky. I had seen a patient like this before, although they presented a bit differently. Our suspicion was actually that she had an occluded abdominal aorta, just with subsequent lower limb ischemia and cord ischemia potentially. And so we grabbed the ultrasound at the bedside, did a quick bilateral assessment for arterial flow in the femoral arteries, just because that, from an ultrasound point of view, is really easy to image, and there was no flow that we could detect. We're fortunate enough that whilst we didn't have subspecialty surgery on site, we did have CT scanning, and we went and organised a CT angiogram, which confirmed the acute aortic occlusion. Now, on those images, it essentially showed that her aorta was occluded around the level of the renal arteries and in terms of some distal complications she had some collateral flow perfusing the lower limbs but minimal but the, her bowel was uniformly ischemic and one of her kidneys was you know devascularized and one had only partial flow so it was clearly quite a devastating condition that she had. My god this is awful and this isn't something that I have heard much about. You and I were chatting before and saying we spend a lot of time learning and teaching about aortic dissections, but acute aortic occlusion is not something that I have seen or been taught about in any depth. So can you give us a bit of more information on that? Yeah, Vanessa, I completely agree. I remember the first time I saw this, I ended up feeling a little bit silly that I'd never really thought about this or learnt about the condition or done any reading about it, and because it is really quite devastating. I mean, there's no doubt it's uncommon, and, you know, getting a good incidence is pretty inaccurate based on how uncommon it is. So just know that it's very rare, but very devastating, and that it has quite a high mortality rate. In terms of what causes it, it can be either, you know, a thrombotic cause or an embolic cause. And I guess historically, it's been a lot of atrial fibrillation and cardiac emboli, but those have reduced in the, in the age of better anticoagulation. 
And one to remember is that people who've had aortic surgery can have thrombosis of a graft or stent, and that can be the trigger for an aortic occlusion. In terms of clinical features, and they can differ depending on exactly where the anatomical location is of the occlusion and which aortic branches have, I guess, you know, no or reduced flow. I think the take-home point for me is that you really need a high index of suspicion for something bad with anyone who has sort of pain and bilateral leg symptoms. And one of the other reasons to bring this up is it's really easy in a case like this to go down the pathway of just being a primary cord issue. Whereas the reality for this lady is that she, while she did have a spinal cord injury, it was ischemic in nature. And the primary issue wasn't in fact her, you know, the normal processes we consider that cause spinal cord compression. Other features of this condition include, you know, an acute onset of back or flank pain or abdominal pain with weakness, paralysis or mottling of the legs and, and other evidence of ischemia. But there have been case reports of trickier presentations, which are really unfair, I think. You know, just someone with an isolated hypertensive crisis, presumably due to renal artery blood flow and the subsequent release of renin. And this lady, thinking back to her vital signs, did have a slightly elevated blood pressure. But I think these trickier, more subtle presentations are, are probably just a bit unfair. The diagnosis is largely just confirmed on CT angiography, which also is also helpful for planning interventions. It allows us to see both the level of the occlusion and then map out and identify any obvious end organ ischemia. But one thing that can be really useful in a rural area and helped us in this case is we were able to do a quick point of care ultrasound, which was very suggestive that we had a, you know, a proximal ischemic process on the basis that we had sort of bilateral femoral arteries with no flow. In terms of management, it's, uh, it's very complicated. And there isn't a lot of worldwide experience and high-level data and studies on this issue. But I guess it's fair to say that it's time critical and it, and it depends on your local referral centre as to exactly what interventions are offered. My thoughts around rural areas are the key points are a heparin, analgesia and an early phone call to facilitate transfer if that's appropriate. And then in terms of the specific management, then their options include revascularization with you know, thromboembolectomy, uh, which is an endovascular treatment or other surgical options such as aortofemoral or aortoiliac bypass. Some of these patients need amputation, a lot of them need fasciotomy, and some people just get received palliative care depending on the, their comorbidities, the duration of symptoms and the involvement of other end organs in the ischemic process. There's certainly some other aspects of supportive care such as fluids or pain relief, and certainly the latter is very important. But I think the focus of this talk should really just be understanding that this is a condition, that it is a really big deal, that you can get some ideas that it might be going on based on the bilateral nature of symptoms and that really in a rural area where you don't have the ability to, to perform definitive management, there needs to be you know, a very early phone call to facilitate transfer and, and advice from a vascular surgeon. Most of these treatments that you've mentioned, um, you know, our aortofemoral or aortoiliac bypasses aren't something that we can do in the rural emergency department. But are there any situations where we might be able to offer some sort of, maybe not definitive therapy, but more definitive therapy than palliative care, or at least a sort of temporizing measure until we can get the patient to a referral center if we're going to have enough time to get them there before more ischemic damage is caused? Yeah, so like we said, you know, things like pain relief, heparin are really important aspects of supportive care. 
in some cases there may be a role for systemic thrombolysis and I know that's an intervention that we can provide in rural areas. The potential utility for that's really only in the patients with a distal aortic occlusion with minimal sort of lower limb motor symptoms. But I totally understand, you know, that we've got an opportunity to potentially reduce the thrombus burden in a patient prior to transfer. The problem is there's really just no great data on that. And whilst it makes complete sense, I think the best idea is just to talk to the receiving vascular surgeon, particularly when you're a long way away, because it's a very reasonable thought. And there may be a role, it's just not clear at present in terms of the data. So this doesn't sound like it's got a fantastic prognosis. Luckily, it's incredibly rare, but you have seen two in your career and you're not old. So I'm a little concerned. So tell us some more about prognosis. Yeah, look, Vanessa, you're right. The prognosis is very poor. The observational studies on this sort of in the last 10 years suggest the mortality rate somewhere between a third and a half of patients, which is obviously very high and, and the morbidity rates are higher than that, as you could imagine. That's only going to be increased even further in rural and remote locations, as you know, with reduced access to definitive care. But other things that can reduce the or, or worsen the prognosis are things that we'd expect, like being a delayed presentation, like the lady I've described, involvement of the renal arteries and superior mesenteric arteries so that you have significant renal and bowel ischemia and other patient factors like comorbidities, they're all going to make that prognosis estimate a bit worse. So yeah, as, you, as you've correctly said, the prognosis for this condition is, is very poor. And reflecting on those conditions that you just mentioned that increase the mortality from this process, it sounds like your patient had a lot of these conditions and a lot of the factors that were going against her in terms of delayed presentation, her renal arteries, her gut being ischemic, this history of illicit drug use, all these things, the smoking, all these things that could certainly make this worse. So can you bring us back to the patient and tell us what happened? Yeah, so um, for this lady, I'd call the vascular surgeon at our referral centre. And uh, we'd had a, just a frank conversation about this lady's prognosis and tried to make a plan for, for her management. We reviewed the scans, talked about the time course, and unfortunately, due to the duration of time and the degree of established ischemia, both to her limbs and bowel and kidneys, it was decided that this was unsurvivable. So we just offered this lady some pain control and she died in our department in the early hours of the next morning. My gosh, that's an unbelievable story. This lady goes from being well to going to the loo and being dead within another 24 hours. How did you deal with having to abruptly palliate someone like this and just even explaining to them what was going on? Yeah, that was really challenging, Vanessa. I mean, we do a lot of end-of-life discussions in our practice, both of us and, and lots of people that are listeners. I've always found, though, people who are quite alert and orientated and able to have a discussion with me, it's a really strange feeling to sort of talk to them about the fact that in the next 24 hours at some point they're going to die and there's not much we can really do to help them. We do a lot of talking to elderly people who know that they they don't have a lot of time left to live due to their own illnesses or age. And we know we talk to families a lot when a patient's critically ill and unable to participate. But I guess in my practice, I don't do a lot of acute end-of-life conversations with people who are young and sort of alert. So I found that really challenging. And that was, you know, a very difficult conversation to have with her and her family. They, As you can understand, her family and herself were really in disbelief. 
and it was really challenging both on myself and my colleagues and and but most importantly the family and the patient obviously there's no way to prepare yourself for that and there's no way for a patient to sort of even necessarily fully comprehend what's happening when you know so much information is being thrown at you but just explaining the situation as you did i'm sure gave them some peace and doing what you're doing now in terms of educating more of us about this will help more of us pick this up, hopefully, and if we're not too far from a referral center, we'll be able to get them to definitive care. So let's hope that this leads to someone having an index of suspicion for, for this particular issue. And so interested in sort of conclusion, are there any little summary points that you want to make, any things, just key points and pearls to remind us of? Look, I think it's just good that we've had a chance to talk about this condition and it hopefully puts it on people's radars. If you do a bit of there's other resources on this condition available online and I'd recommend people do some more reading. I think hopefully this case highlights the importance of just a good basic clinical exam and some basic clinical reasoning. And whilst it is basic, it, it's really tricky in clinical medicine and when someone looks sick it's very easy to get some diagnostic anchoring on more common conditions that present similarly. So I think it's really easy to go off on the wrong track here. I completely agree. As I was saying before, I think this would be very easy to have missed. You know, if, she, if she'd been found a few hours earlier and maybe her feet weren't quite as cold, maybe her cap refill wasn't quite as bad, you know, you'd easily convince yourself that, oh, well, her, you know, extremities are a wee bit cool and because she's been on the ground for hours and she's, you know, maybe her temperature's a bit low and you could easily miss this diagnosis. So it really behooves us to do the, just the basic, you don't have to do anything fancy. This is just checking the pulses in the feet, checking the cap refill realizing that it's taking that much time. And the use of um, point-of-care ultrasound here is great. You know, a lot of us in rural areas, we don't have advanced imaging. But more and more of us do have access to some sort of portable ultrasound. So just looking quickly, no fancy scans necessary, just looking quickly at those common femoral arteries and seeing if you've got flow. Yeah, so when using point-of-care ultrasound, I think it's just such a great extension of our clinical exam and it's only more useful in, in rural areas. You can certainly look more proximally in this condition and look at the abdominal aorta or look at the celiac vessels, but I just think it, it's very easy to image the femoral arteries, and uh, it was just a useful and simple bedside test to, to help increase our clinical suspicion. So, And I think it's something that most of our listeners could do on a shift tomorrow if they had a similar concern. Yeah, because I think if someone's saying, you know, they look like they maybe have mesenteric ischemia, even though she didn't have an acutely tender abdomen, you know, you could easily think you do the abdominal scan and you look and you say, okay, it doesn't look like there's much flow there, but maybe there's a wee bit. And then you forget to check lower down, you know? So just that um, key point to remember to sort of assess the whole patient and not to anchor. Yeah, completely agree. Well, thank you for sharing this case, which was a really tragic case, but a great learning opportunity for all of us. And um, thank you again for sharing. Thanks so much, Vanessa. Great to talk to you. Hope you're doing well over there. time again for Scott Weingott. Critical Care Mailbag. Scott, good to hear your voice, man. How's it going? What's up, Swaminatrix? Not much, man, but I got a good question for you. In fact, this is a listener question from Jess Mason, our very own Jess Mason. You ready to take it on? I'm, I'm so ready. Let's hear from Jess. I want to know, when do you call a code for a cardiac arrest? Obviously, sometimes we get to this point much faster. Sometimes it takes more time. But I want to know your thought process. I know it's very nuanced and there's a lot that goes into this decision. But tell me what factors you're considering when you reach the point of calling time of death. And clearly, Scott, there's a lot of things to factor in here. It's a really broad question. It's hard to have a broad answer. 
let's start with some hard stops. Hard stops. Are there features from the story that make you stop regardless of the duration of the resuscitation? Look, and this might be paternalistic to some of the listeners, but I think if you're not paternalistic in this regard, you're actually failing the healthcare system. And if you get a patient with advanced dementia from a nursing home who by all rights should have been DNR, DNI in the first place, but it just was never enacted or there were some issues making that happen, I'm going to run a very brief resuscitation. So if they've already had extensive ACLS in the field, I might call it just as soon as the patient arrives. I've seen a number of lectures that Ashley Shreves has given talking about this, and she kind of comes back to the same point over and over again. It's very likely after a cardiac arrest, even if you get the patient back, that they will return to even their baseline function. It's going to be much worse. If not, they're never going to have any kind of functional capacity. Absolutely correct. I can't make them better. The best I could do is where they were. And if where they were was not a high level of functioning, and we know there's going to be a hit neurologically from a cardiac arrest in many cases in that population, I don't think it's very worthwhile to do extensive resuscitation. And you mentioned advanced dementia. Are there other situations, advanced cancer, anything else that makes you think, you know, we're not going to get this person to a functional outcome? I find it harder to be absolute in those situations because I just don't have the prognostic ability and I don't have the value system to know. So in those circumstances, I really need family to tell me, no, no, you don't need to go any further before I would just stop you know, across the board. Now, of course, that's going to factor into my decision-making for how long to run an arrest. And of course, you're at least going to have to start resuscitation to find out that information, right? That there is advanced dementia, there is advanced cancer, wait for family to get there to get a little bit more information. So there's going to be some length of resuscitation while you're just trying to determine those kind of situations and those issues. Sure. But, you know, and this, uh, in my opinion, shouldn't be this way, but the, a lot of the EMS folks will disagree. And a lot of the EMS services, and Swami, you remember New York City was like this, the codes would be run in the field for extended periods of time, you know, upwards sometimes of 45 minutes, an hour. And their stance, and they may be right in many circumstances, there's nothing they could do in the hospital we can't do in the field and moving the patient's a disruption of the resuscitation. If they bring in pretty much any patient with a, a few provisos that's been running in the field for 45 or 60 minutes, I really have nothing to offer those patients. And I think that's become a, a split point now because I think in the past, there might have not been anything else. We were all running ACLS too. Now there's some different things, both that we, the way that we run those resuscitations, as well as things we can offer depending on where you work. I mean, my place doesn't have ECMO, but that is a possibility at a number of places where that is obviously something we can offer in the hospital for a certain patient population that you can't offer in the field. Initial conditions. So Scott, let me transition that to another one of our decision points. Does the presenting rhythm or the initial arrest rhythm influence your decision? Yeah, it definitely does. A patient with VFib VTAC has a better prognosis and a better likelihood of having a reversible cause. So those make me run it longer. And especially if they're in something like electrical storm where I just can't get them out. That usually is a sign of a reversible problem that if we could intervene on it, the patient may come back. A PA is kind of weird and you have to dichotomize it in my opinion. There's PA that's actually pseudo-PEA, horrible terms, and there's a whole podcast on that. But where you actually have a rhythm, no pulse, but you look at the heart on echo and it's beating. That has a much better prognosis than the alternative, which is PA, you throw an echo on and the heart's doing nothing. 
And so that latter one, I kind of put in a category with asystole, and both asystole and no heart beating uh, PA. I'm still going to run the code, don't get me wrong, but I'm not going to probably run it as long as I would with a patient with VFib, VTAC, or uh, pseudo PEA. So PEA with no cardiac motion on ultrasound is a worse prognostic indicator for that patient's outcome. You're still running the code, but not as long. PEA, but there is activity. So the patient isn't actually pulseless. You just can't feel the pulse. You're going to, in general, run those a little bit longer because they have a better prognosis. There's a better chance for a good outcome. And then you mentioned VFib, VTAC. Are you talking about if the patient had VFib or VTAC in the field on presentation or both that you're going to be running those longer? Well, both, but certainly if they're still just consistently on every rhythm check in VFib, VTAC, that's an even better situation than they had their initial rhythm VFib and then every moment afterwards has been asystole. That situation's not so great, even though their initial rhythm was better. Now, there's situations where the patient is in VFib or VTAC in front of you, but it's been a long resuscitation before getting to you. And you say, even with the fact that they have something, the chance of a good neurologic outcome is not there. And I know these are, these are really hard things to wrap our heads around and make a real decision or, or a real claim as to what the best management is. But we see cases where they've run the arrest for an hour in the field. The patient was down for 15 or 20 minutes beforehand. And there's still some kind of agonal electricity going on in that patient's heart. But do they really have a chance for a good outcome? All right, well, let me, let me contextualize the question like this. There's some factors here. In general, from every piece of evidence and my own experience, there is a time limit for CPR at which the outcome for neurologically intact survival is not going to be there. And that number is somewhere between 45 and 55 minutes. I've had cases where people tell me it's been 47 minutes. So that's why I say you probably could say fairly safe. It's somewhere around like the 55 minute marks is the absolute maximum. Now, there's some things that change that a little bit. If there's been periods of intermittent ROSC, then that time may be extended because it kind of resets the clock. And now here's the really intriguing thing, Swami. In our ECMO literature, we routinely have patients who have been 65, 75, 90 minutes with neurologically intact survival. And there's nothing the magical that the ECMO is doing to erase the effects of the low flow state on the brain. So what it's really telling us is these outside limits of conventional resuscitation are probably due to patients who have gone that long having intractable post-cardiac arrest hemodynamic decompensation, and they die before they could have neurologically intact survival. Because if at the 90-minute mark, ECMO in a non-hypothermic patient could still get you neurologically intact survival, it's not the brain preservation of putting them on ECMO at 90 minutes. It's the fact that they could not survive the you know, four or five days of post-arrest hemodynamics without the ECMO support. Scott, let me restate that. Let me restate that and make sure that we're, we're clear on this. So in traditional resuscitation where you do not have ECMO available, that's not something you can do. Somewhere in the 45 to 55 minute range, even with high quality CPR, you are not going to get that patient to a good neurologic outcome. However, if you have ECMO available, that time might be prolonged. And the reason you're saying that time might be prolonged is not because ECMO is magical and reverses that neurologic dysfunction, but rather that even after you've had 40 or 45 minutes or 50 minutes of compressions, if you get that patient back to ROSC, you just don't have enough hemodynamic support to support that brain function without ECMO in place. Yeah, that's my conjecture is that these patients succumb to a much worse post-cardiac arrest syndrome. And that's what the literature supports. 
So if they've been in the field with continuous CPR, no ROSC, and whatever downtime they were able to find out for greater than, you know, 55 minutes, would I run that resuscitation a little? Well, that gets to another question of whether you're at a training site or not. But if I ran it, it wouldn't be for very long. Other parameters. All right, let's talk about some of the other parameters that people often use to make decisions on running the resuscitation or continuing to run the resuscitation. A couple months ago, we talked about end tidal CO2 and all of the ways that you use it in cardiac arrest. Is there a number on the end tidal CO2 that you say, that number is so low, there's no chance for a good outcome here? And maybe it's not a specific number, but a time period in that number. Yeah, and this gets into some other stuff we'll talk about in terms of what the CPR is actually doing. But, you know, I think it was in the New England Journal in the 1990s, there was a a paper saying at the 20-minute mark, if your end title is less than 10 with the best quality CPR you could do, they're not making it. And that feels right, but it feels right for reasons that we should talk about. And the other thing that you'll see in the literature is, you know, if you throw on the probe after, you know, however arbitrary period of time you're running the code for, let's say 20 minutes, and there's no heart motion, that also has some negative prognostics, though that's latter one's been questioned a little bit. But what is the end title actually telling you? It's telling you that if you can't get the end title greater than 10, the chances of the CPR you're doing supporting the patient for even that 45 minutes is fairly low because end title becomes a perfusion marker. And the way I use this same idea to my advantage is if I have an A-line in, and you know from listening to MRAP over the years that I like A-lines during arrest, and I can't get a decent blood pressure, you know, that also tells me that this is not the patient who's going to survive 45 minutes of CPR, because if you cannot get a reasonable blood pressure, they're not supporting their heart and brain. And so that's what the end title is really telling you. It's not definitive. And if I have like a 40-year-old with continuous V-fib and the end title is less than 10, I'm not stopping at the 20-minute mark. It's just one more thing to stick in the mix of the decision-making, you know, attributes. And of course, we talked about this again in that prior piece on end title CO2. You got to make sure that you're doing compressions in the right location and you're actually compressing the left ventricle because that in and of itself might be why you're not getting that end title CO2. Absolutely. And we actually have a segment coming up with Jacob Avila talking about the use of ultrasound in cardiac arrest and where he sees it, what he sees with the literature. I think that's going to be an important one to guide our management here as well. And one of the things he points out is that we don't all agree all the time on what cardiac standstill is. So just take that into account when you're trying to make these decisions. And it sounds like you're taking a lot of different pieces. It's not one piece that can just really outweigh everything. It's all of these different things together. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah you know, factor with the one we haven't talked about, age. Age. You show me a young patient, I'm going to run that arrest a lot longer than someone who is much older. And that's not because I hate the elderly. They're wonderful. These people are, <laughs> you know, don't, don't put me in that ages category. No, it's because their chances of surviving a cardiac arrest, you know, after age 75 or 80 is a lot lower and especially prolonged arrest. But a 40-year-old has a lot better chance at it. Their pre-existing factors, their disease state, like you said, their presentation, what's been done for them so far, the possibility of intermittent ROSC, what actually is going on in their arrest, the presentation of a patient with just intractable hemodynamic decomp that I can't get better even with medication versus someone who physiologically during the arrest is looking pretty good. Some of these patients have saturations of 98% with a good pulse ox waveform. Some of them are waking up in the midst of CPR and actually need to be sedated. So all of these factors are going to go into it. We just mentioned end tidal CO2. There's some other labs that people often talk about. Now, I don't get a lot of labs during arrest, but sometimes we will get a potassium level. I have seen specific potassium cutoffs that says if the potassium's above this, 
you're done. You're not getting that patient back. Do you have a cutoff that you use if you're getting that potassium level? You know, it's funny. I've seen that in the hypothermia literature, and that that's one way of deciding in the field or early on if the patient has any prognosis. I haven't seen that for general arrest. My take on that, if I saw a super high potassium level, would be, well, this is what caused the arrest, and I better be treating that. I'm not sure if I would stop based on a point of care potassium uh, from any level. And in fact, we've had arrests who have come back when we got the point of care and the K was sky high and we gave six, seven, eight amps of calcium chloride and the patient reverses. So yeah, I'm not going to do a cutoff based on potassium. And perhaps that's the issue here. This has been extrapolated from the hypothermia literature to other arrests where, you know, hypothermia we know is an outlier. We're not even talking about patients with hypothermic arrest. That's a separate podcast that we can talk about at another time. Summary. So Scott, what we have here is a really complicated question of stopping a resuscitation in cardiac arrest. And, and there's no clear answer. There's no one lab value. There's no one parameter that's going to make this decision for us. There are some things that we know portend a worse outcome. So if the patient has really advanced dementia, if they have advanced cancer, if they have advanced other diseases, they have a less likelihood of having a good neurologic outcome. That's still a conversation we often want to have with the family if we can have it. As far as duration, and I think sometimes this is where it comes down to, is there a time where I can just say, I've been doing CPR for a long time, there's not really any chance of a good outcome. It sounds like 45 to the 55 minute window, if you're doing traditional CPR without ECMO, you can prolong that if you're using ECMO, again, really picking the right patients for applying ECMO to that patient. And then some of the other things that we talked about was end tidal CO2, if it's under 10 at 20 minutes, that portends a worse outcome. Cardiac standstill ultrasound portends a worse outcome. The potassium level, probably something that's been extrapolated from other literature and doesn't really belong here. But none of these things are the one marker to use. It's really taking all of this together. And I think the other side of this is which ones would you run longer? It sounds like the younger the patient, if they recently had return of spontaneous circulation during this arrest, if they have a shockable rhythm like VFib or VTAC, if there's still something you can offer to the scenario in front of you, you're going to keep running that code a little bit longer. So we really have to look at both of these and understand that there isn't one thing that's going to tell us time to stop and that one thing that's going to tell us keep going. Absolutely. And there was a inpatient cardiac arrest study that showed the longer you run the arrest, the better survival. And that doesn't you know, extend out into <laughs> infinity. But if you're running really short arrests on young viable patients, I think you're doing them a disservice. Absolutely. It's time for a heart to heart. It's been a while since we've spoken about pediatric seizures, that is. And no, I don't want to talk about febrile pediatric seizures. Okay, that's the favorite child. That's the one that we talk about all the time. We love it in emergency medicine. And I don't want to talk about that. I want to hear a discussion about afebrile pediatric seizures because a lot's changed and there's a lot of misconceptions that we need to clear the air on. So let's have a chat. Jason Woods and Jan Martin. I am Jan Martin, and I am a pediatric neurohospitalist at the Children's Hospital of Colorado, and I am also our associate program director of our child neurology residency program. So Jan and I did residency together, and, and she's a very smart person that I've known for a while. And I wanted to bring her by. Something that I get asked to talk about a fair bit is what do you do, especially in your ER or in a clinic when you have somebody show up? and you think they've had their first time a febrile seizure. Sort of what's the approach? Are there any features that we need to be aware of that are dangerous? Um, can I send every one of these kids home? Do they all need to be admitted? Like where in there do we sit? 
I always feel stupid starting with definitions, but like what are seizures and what's epilepsy and and what terminology are we using now? So the sciencey technical definition of a seizure, which is defined by this group that's called the International League Against Epilepsy, which is a weird like it's a weird name yeah, for me because I'm like so it sort of much implies, more entertaining than all the other groups. Like they sound like superheroes. But it sort of implies that there's like a contradictory group that's like for epilepsy. You know, it, I've always thought that it's very odd. The International League Against Epilepsy, and we fight multinational axis of people for epilepsy. <laughs> anyway, they are sort of the main people who get to make all the decisions about what we call seizures and how we name them and all those kinds of things. So their definition is that a seizure is a transient occurrence of signs and symptoms that are due to abnormal, excessive neuronal activity in the brain. Okay. And I think the easier version of that and the way that I explain it to patients is that your brain communicates sort of electrochemically and there's sort of this baseline level of function that's supposed to be there all the time. And when you have a seizure, that activity just goes on overdrive and it's overcommunicating and a sort of electrical storming, so to speak. And that is what a seizure is. What's epilepsy? So epilepsy is at least two unprovoked seizures that are more than 24 hours apart is the most basic definition. So if you have a seizure and we're pretty convinced it was a seizure and two weeks or two months or two years later, you have another one. And there wasn't anything that clearly caused it, like a fever or an illness or a trauma or something like that, then we get to call you epilepsy. Is seizure disorder a synonym for epilepsy? Do you use it differently? It sort of depends. Um, so you can also be called epilepsy if you've had one seizure, but we think that your risk for having another one is higher than 60%, which is like very nuanced. Kind of depends on who you're talking to. Sort of depends on why you think that. Not a great answer. Sort of a frustrating definition. And then the third way that you can get diagnosed with epilepsy is if you have a single seizure, but we make a diagnosis of an epilepsy syndrome. So if we're able to say after that seizure that we think you have a syndrome like childhood absence epilepsy or something like that, even without future seizures captured, we can we can still call you epilepsy. Okay. And I think seizure disorder is used probably as a synonym for that. Like you said, I try when I talk to families to be very clear, like this is all epilepsy is because there's a lot of baggage and stigma and right. things associated with the word epilepsy. And so when I talk to families, I say, you know, all it means is that I think you're at risk for having more seizures that kind of come from nowhere. What about further breakdown in, in terminology? Like I very clearly remember having to memorize definitions between simple and complex. And uh, there's grand mal and petite mal, which some families still use. I don't particularly. So I don't know. What, what What's the terminology that we should be using? Yeah. So that's a good question. And it changes approximately every 10 minutes. <laughs> Again, our friends at the International League Against Epilepsy. Yes. You're welcome. So in the way back when, decades and decades and decades ago, everything was kind of like petite mall, grand mall. And really that refers to generalized seizures. So seizures that come from your whole brain all at once. And so petite mall seizures were really like absence seizures or seizures where you don't really do a whole lot physically. And then grand mall seizures, like the big in the movies, whole body convulsing yeah. type of seizures. And over time, that evolved into like any kind of big-ish seizure, people just called a grand mall seizure. And any kind of small-ish seizure, people just called a petite mall seizure. And everybody was like, that's not going to work. <laughs> so then they redefined everything. And so for a long time, we were calling them complex seizures and focal complex and partial complex and generalized and all of these kinds of things. Anyway, they revise it every so often. The last time it got revised was in 2017. 
and they tried to simplify it. And so now basically the way that it works is you want to figure out if the seizure is focal or generalized. So if it's coming from just one part of the brain or coming from the whole brain all at once, you want to figure out if the patient has lost awareness or retained awareness. And so you can say like a focal unaware or a focal aware. And then you want to figure out what kind of motor features to their seizure they had. So was it a you know generalized tonic-clonic seizure with loss of awareness where their whole body was jerking? Was it a focal seizure with myoclonic jerks? And that part, I think it's sort of nuanced and probably isn't really neither here nor there for your average like emergency person. So I think for the most part, when we're asking or when you're calling us about a seizure, what we want to know is generalized or focal and aware or not aware and like what did the movements look like and whatever description. That actually makes me feel a ton better because I have definitely gone, instead of keeping up with the terminology, I now just describe what the parents told me happened yes. and then don't classify it when I'm, t- when I'm talking to you guys on the phone. Okay, cool. So uh, medical school wasn't all that long ago for me and yet my terminology on seizures is totally wrong. That, of course, is due to the fine work of everyone here at the International League Against Epilepsy. I think I can do this, especially if there is some sort of catchy song. Maybe drop a little beat here. Okay, now give me a little bit of bass. Just give me a little bit of bass. All right, focal or generalized? Aware or unaware? Describe the motor movement. Describe the motor movement. So... A patient shows up into our ER and they've had some sort of abnormal event. Are there features that can help tell you seizure versus not seizure? And maybe can we talk about some of the mimics that are not concerning and and hopefully we can screen out in the ER? Yeah. The biggest feature of recurrent seizures, at least, is that they usually look exactly the same every single time. So, you know, kids and babies, as we all know, do a lot of really funny, weird stuff. And so what I often tell families is like what you're really looking for is something that looks the same every single time you see them do it. And that's hard if it's their first event and no one's ever seen them before. So that only helps you if they've had another one. Other things that are really important and that I really stress to families is to try to figure out if that awareness piece is there or not. So most seizures result in some kind of decreased level of awareness. So it's not always the patients are totally unconscious, but they're most of the time they're not awake and responding to you normally. You know, I really want to know, like, did you pick them up? Did you touch their face? Did you squeeze their nose? Did you give them a wet willy? And yes, I do tell every family that they should do that if they're not sure if their kid is having a seizure. Very few people are just going to sit and take that and not react. Yeah. You know, I say you have to do something that they cannot ignore. And I actually have instructions in my after visit summaries from clinic that literally say, like, please give your child a wet willy and see what happens. That's incredible. So the only way to do this is to check. I'm not having a seizure. Don't do it. Wet willy test. We're going to do it. No, we're not doing it. No, don't do it. Just don't do it. Don't do it. No. Ew. Ew. What's wrong with you? You're not having. So really want to know if they're aware or not. Right. And and you really have to try hard to get their attention. So that's one one way to kind of figure it out is how how responsive were they? And then anything that would suggest that their body like wasn't moving normally. Right. So were they stiff? Was it just one side of their body that was stiff and not the other? Was their head kind of like turned and stuck in some sort of position or were their eyes turned and stuck in some sort of position? So if you can get some sense that there was some kind of like focal neurologic something happening, that should raise your suspicions a little bit more, right? Things like my child just went limp or they arched their back, like those kinds of things are a little bit harder. Like it could be a seizure. It could be something else. It's hard to know. But if you can really get like and they turn their head, they look to the side, and their one arm was stiff. Like, okay, my like suspicions are much higher that this was a seizure than something else. I think in the adult world, there's a lot of sort of like 
old wives' tales that say, oh, you should ask about, like, did they have incontinence, right? Did they wet themselves during a seizure? And that can happen, but very frequently it doesn't. That's more common yeah, with a generalized it's helpful seizure. helpful if it's present, yeah, but right. if it's not there, yes, it, it doesn't exactly. mean much. Yeah, and the same thing with, like, the tongue biting, right? I think we all learn, like, oh, ask, like, did you have incontinence and did you bite your tongue? And, like, those things will happen if you have a big generalized tonic-clonic seizure, but they aren't going to happen most of the time, especially if the seizure is focal and it doesn't involve your whole body. Seizure mimics. Okay, so may maybe as a way to talk about what things to look for and what things not to look for, let's run through a couple of common non-seizure strange things that kids and babies do that get brought to be seen that are probably not concerning. So things like breath holding, you know, is, are there features of breath holding that sort of, you know, define it versus it not being a seizure? Yeah. So I think the the biggest group where we see seizure mimics is babies and toddlers. I think as kids get older into like school age, it's a little bit more clear based on the description of the events, sort of whether like whether you should be suspicious for seizure, but babies are really hard and toddlers are also really hard. So breath holding spells are really common. And annoyingly, you can have a seizure after a breath holding spell, yeah. which is like super annoying. <laughs> Because is it a seizure? Is it not? I, I mean, now what do I do? So breath holding spells, the seizure part of it has to be preceded by the breath holding, which sort of has to be preceded by the kid getting upset. Right. And that's kind of the sequence of events it has to go in in order to call it a breath holding spell. So the story should be that whatever happened, kid got upset, cried, cried, cried held their breath, turned blue or purple or whatever color, kind of passed out, and then they may or may not have had a little bit of twitching. And it can be generalized or it can be focal afterwards. But all of that other stuff that came before the seizure has to be there. What about, you know, maybe as they're starting to get older, ticks? And is, is there a, a way to distinguish those? Yeah. So ticks are tricky in younger kids because a lot of the way that we figure it out is by history. And so it's not usually until kids are like, five or six that they can really tell us sort of like what's going on. So sometimes in younger kids, it's a little harder to tell. Ticks are involuntary, but they can be suppressed. So you can ask kids, like, if you try really hard, can you stop this from happening? And oftentimes they can for a period of time. And then the next piece of that that follows is like, okay, yeah, I can stop it for a period of time, but then I get really uncomfortable and I want to do it. And when you say that I can do it again, then I'm going to do it five or six times in a row just to sort of like relieve that stress or that pressure. And if you get a history like that, which you have to ask for, because, you know, most kids aren't like, and then like, you know, I feel yeah. like really like I want to do this, then you can feel pretty confident that they're ticks. And getting a timeline of like, they kind of wax and wane a little bit. And they're sort of there more often when kids again are like stressed or excited or nervous. That's sort of what brings out ticks. Recap. Two common seizure mimics in children, breath holding spells and ticks. So breath holding spells, these are going to be preceded by some sort of emotional stressor. The kid is upset, he's crying, and then he holds his breath. And then sometimes might actually have a little bit of seizure-like activity. But it's because of the breath holding, which was triggered by the emotional stressor. Okay, so that sequence is very important. Ticks can be challenging. It's a little easier to pick out in an older child who's able to tell you what's going on. These can also be exacerbated by stress, but a child with a tick is actually able to, at least temporarily, suppress it. Okay, so we've talked about terminology, we've talked about mimics, and I think let's take a break here. In the next part, in part two, let's talk about the workup of the first time non-febrile seizure in kids in the emergency department. Focal or generalized? Aware or unaware? Describe the motor movement. Describe the motor movement. 
describe the motor movement. From the syphilis capital of the world, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, it is Cardiology Corner! With your host, Dr. Amol Matu. One of the feared complications in acute myocardial infarction is the lethal dysrhythmias, something we clearly need to know how to manage. And Amol, you typically send me a recent publication on the topic that you want to talk about. This time, you are kicking it old school. This is an article way back in 1998, and Amal, I'm going to date myself. 1998, I was a junior in college. The top songs at that time were by Brandy and Doo-Wop by Lauryn Hill. Is this really how far back we have to go to talk about this topic? Oh, man, 1998. I remember I had so much more hair and a smaller forehead. Oh, those were the days. I was just out of residency. Amal, I'm picturing a mullet. I'm picturing you rocking a mullet in 1998, which I, I, I doubt you had, but that's the image I got in my head right now. That maybe is a Halloween costume. Uh-uh, come again. <laughs> so, well, going back to your question, 1998 was when a really, really nice article was published in a really old version of Emergency Medicine Clinics, and it was published by Tom Aufterheide, and uh, he, he published his fantastic article on post-MI dysrhythmias, and we'll focus on the tachydysrhythmias. And honestly, not a whole lot more has been written since this article, and not a lot has changed. We'll talk about some minor changes, but I think because people aren't really talking about this or writing about it all that much, some of the knowledge, I think, has kind of fell through the cracks. And so it's a great opportunity to bring people back up to speed, even though this article is relatively old. Well, it's got to be good if it's that old and we're still using it. And if anybody knows Thomas out there, let him know that we're talking about him. And we'll get him a challenge coin because this is an article from 23 years ago that we are still talking about today. And let's get into it, Amal. Let's start with ventricular tachycardia. Ventricular tachycardia. In the setting of acute MI, I think this is the one that we really get worried about. And the article says that we can treat it with electricity. I think we know that. But if the patient's stable, can we reach for medications instead? And if we're reaching for medications, what medications should we go with? Before we even talk about meds, I I think it's important for people to understand that there's actually three different types of ventricular tachycardia. And that's not something that I think most people think about. There's a monomorphic VTAC that's non-sustained, sometimes referred to as non-sustained VTAC. There's also sustained monomorphic VTAC. And then there's polymorphic ventricular tachycardia. And that can be broken up into two different categories, but we'll just talk about the generic polymorphic VTAC. And the reason why that distinction between these three is important is because the treatment's very important. Non-sustained VTAC is the term that's used to refer to essentially monomorphic VTAC that lasts less than 30 seconds. So that's how non-sustained versus sustained is defined. Less than 30 seconds is considered non-sustained VTAC. So if you see, say, a 20-beat run of VTAC and it goes away, I think a lot of us would be really inclined or, or compelled to want to treat it. But it turns out that there's really no good evidence of any increase in morbidity or mortality with regards to treating non-sustained VTAC. And, and there's no evidence that if you put them on antiarrhythmics, that is going to decrease their morbidity and mortality in the peri-infarction period. In fact, there's a suggestion out there in the literature that if you just start these patients on amiodarone, lidocaine, and, and so on, that these patients may be at higher risk for complications due to the medications. And and so non-sustained VTAC, what do you do for it? 
You don't need to treat it with the medications. What you should do is to look for the underlying cause. Is there ischemia that needs to be treated? Is there hypokalemia? Is there hypomagnesemia? Look for the underlying cause and try to treat it aggressively. And just as an aside, most of the cardiology community still like to see the potassium in cardiac patients to be over four to four and a half and the magnesium to be over two. I know some people don't like checking even the magnesium levels, but that's where they want it. And that might decrease the likelihood of non-sustained becoming more of a dangerous type of arrhythmia. But non-sustained VTAC should really be assigned to you to go looking for the underlying cause and treat that rather than just trying to cover it up with your antiarrhythmics. Now, let's say that you've got sustained VTAC, which is defined as VTAC that's at least 30 seconds or long enough to produce hemodynamic instability. If the patient's stable, then really you can probably use whatever type of medication that you want. Lidocaine is still out there. Amiodarone is a reasonable choice. Amiodarone probably has a little bit more support because amiodarone has within it some intrinsic beta blocking features. And beta blockade in these patients is really important because what beta blockers do is they are anti-adrenergic. They decrease the sympathetic surges that oftentimes leads these patients to continue to have VTAC or, or electrical storm. And then the third type of VTAC is polymorphic VTAC. And polymorphic VTAC almost always is due to cardiac ischemia. Interestingly, monomorphic VTAC usually is not, usually is not due to ischemia, usually it's due to electrolytes or underlying scar. Polymorphic VTAC, that's a slam dunk for pretty much always being due to underlying ischemia. So in the peri-infarction or ACS patient, if you see them going to polymorph VTAC, you can put a call into cardiology after you've, of course, you get them out of it. Put a call in cardiology and say, I just had this patient going to polymorph VTAC and there should be no argument about taking them right up to the cath lab. If it's a monomorph VTAC, there might actually be some argument there because monomorph VTAC less often is associated with cardiac ischemia. And the, the last point I just want to make, when I use the term polymorphic VTAC in this uh, discussion, what we're talking about is normal QT polymorph VTAC. A completely different bird is the prolonged QT polymorph VTAC, also known as torsad, and that, that's usually due to medications or electrolytes. It's not associated with ischemia. So I, I hope that kind of clarifies in a long-winded way the answer to your question. I think it does. And I think it's really important for us to understand those different types of VTAC because these are what we're going to see on a regular basis. You mentioned those medications, lidocaine and neodorone. If we use one of those drugs, we're typically going to start them on a drip. What about if we convert them with electricity? So let's say that they're in monomorphic or, or polymorphic VT. We convert them with electricity are we starting them or are you starting them on a drip of a anti-dysrhythmic afterwards? Yeah, that's a great question. And again, back in the 90, early 90s, when I was in residency, we would routinely always start them on a drip. Back then, lidocaine was very popular. And then after 2000, everybody got put on amiodarone. And subsequent literature really has found that there's really no benefit to routinely starting them on lidocaine or amiodarone or even procainamide drips probably the best thing you can do is, again, to look for the underlying cause for what caused the arrhythmia and treat that. And if you really want to put them on some type of medication afterwards, beta blockers tend to be the best because beta blockers decrease the adrenergic surges, which are likely to 
bring that arrhythmia back. So what I do is if I shock them out of it, I try to get some beta blockers on board and I don't worry about starting them on lidocaine, amyl, or procainamide. Ventricular fibrillation. All right, excellent. Now let's move from ventricular tachycardia to ventricular fibrillation. Clearly, we're going to be using electricity. That recommendation hasn't changed. It shouldn't change. But after conversion, after we've converted them with the electricity, we've put them back into sinus rhythm, should we be using a medication? And in this article, they mentioned procainamide, amiodarone, lidocaine, and bretillium made me do a little double take. Amal, really, I understand it's 1998, but is there any role for bretillium now? So are you using any of these drugs after conversion of VF? The quick answer is no, but but to bretillium, bretillium stopped being manufactured. And within the past couple of years, I've heard it's being manufactured once again, but I don't know anyone who's using it. And as a total aside, one of my favorite resuscitation Hollywood scenes was the scene in E.T., the extraterrestrial, when E.T. had a cardiac arrest. One of the first medications you hear them saying is, give him some bretillium. <laughs> I, I love that. Uh, obviously, it didn't work. But uh, yes. So none of these medications have really been found to improve the outcome as prophylaxis. So after you shock them, lidocaine, amiopurkinum, again, there, there's really no benefit to putting them on that. On the other hand, it appears that using beta blockers is the best. Those other medications have not been found to improve outcome. And again, there's a suggestion that prophylactic use of lidocaine and amio may increase the overall mortality due to increased cases of asystole. So no benefit and possible harm by prophylaxing with these other medications. On the other hand, once again, beta blockers have actually been found to decrease the recurrent incidence of VFib and have been found to decrease mortality. So after I shock them out of it, I'm going to try to get some beta blockade on board. Now here they're making a remake of ET. There's going to be an emergency physician running that resuscitation and he's <laughs> going to call for ketamine, magnesium, tranexamic acid, and he's going to drop a Roboa catheter. And droperidol. Uh, well, I mean, that goes without saying. Obviously, we're going to use droperidol. Almost, it sounds like w with all of these, we're not really going with a medication. We shock them. We're not going to put them on a drip. I think this is really important for us to understand for VT and for VF, that that's kind of the route that we're going to be going. A little bit different maybe than what we had learned in the past. And it sounds like after we get them out, we want to reach for a beta blocker. Now, I don't need you to tell me the name of the beta blocker, but are you giving that beta blocker intravenous? Are you giving it by mouth, assuming the patient can still take a pill by mouth? Yeah, I, I just try to get it in IV. And uh, I, I know that we've talked about IV versus PO beta blockers in routine ACS. But in these patients who are just coming out of a malignant arrhythmia, I try to get it in IV. And again, you can pick whatever beta blocker you want. There's no specific dose. But you just want to get some anti-adrenergic in their system, and beta blockade tends to be the best. So take your pick. Accelerated idioventricular rhythm postlytics. All right, let's move away from VT and VF to another dysrhythmia that we talk about a lot, heavily tested on the boards, and that is accelerated idioventricular rhythm postlytics. So we have a patient with an MI. We've given thrombolytics to, which is already a bit of a rarity. There's not a lot of places. Most places are are trying to get patients to a cath lab if they don't have a cath lab themselves. But let's say that we do give thrombolytics and we see that accelerated idioventricular rhythm. And the classic teaching is don't do anything, just stand there, put your hands behind your back. We'll drop an ECG in the show notes of what this looks like, but it's a regular wide complex rhythm. There's no P waves and it's typically in the 60 to 125 beat per minute range. Again, the book answer is that this is a reperfusion rhythm telling you that your lytics work, time to high five and walk away. 
But we've been hearing, and I, I've heard you teach it this way, but we've been hearing that maybe it's not that simple. Maybe there's actually more to that AI VR. Well, one of the things on the boards that we have been teaching, we meaning me and everyone else out there has been teaching, is that when you give thrombolytics, the thrombolytics take 45 minutes, 60 minutes, sometimes up to an hour and a half before they actually break apart the clot. And at the moment the clot breaks up, you know it's broken up because the patient suddenly develops this accelerated idioventricular rhythm. It looks like VTAC, but it's a little bit slower than normal VTAC. Rate is 125 or 130 or less. And it looks like VTAC. And we typically teach, what do you do? You put your hands in your pocket, step away from the stretcher, wait a few seconds or a couple minutes, and it goes away. It's a self-resolving rhythm. It's something that you should be happy to see. You walk up to the patient, give the patient a high five because it means their artery is responding to the thrombolytics. They've opened up, you know, jump around, be happy. The worst thing you could do is to treat it with lidocaine, amio, and procainamide because that will produce asystole. And so you should just be happy when you see this. And it turns out that what we've been teaching all these years is just a little bit wrong because what the data actually shows is that AI VR is not a reliable sign of reperfusion. Patients can reperfuse without AVR. And then on the other hand, patients can have AVR and yet not be reperfused. So the studies have really not shown that it's either sensitive or specific as a marker of reperfusion. And the studies have shown that if you do nothing with it, it doesn't really, it's not associated with an increase in morbidity and mortality. But if you do treat it, that part at least we've been teaching is correct. If you do treat it with lidocaine, amnio, or procainamide, you can induce hemodynamic instability, such as asystole, which is about as unstable as you can get. And so when you see AIVR, don't treat it. So that part of the teaching is correct. But is it a reliable finding that they have reperfused and responded to the lytics? The answer is no. So if you're using lytics and a patient develops AIVR, great, don't treat it. But they still need to be further evaluated for a persistent clot. And we didn't really know about this. I, I didn't really start thinking about this until maybe about a year or two ago when we had a patient who came in with chest pain and developed an episode of AIVR while they were just in the emergency department. And the patient ended up bumping troponins. We called cardiology later on as a non-STEMI. Cardiology said, hey, you got an EKG from two hours ago that showed AIVR. Why didn't you call us right away? He said, what are you talking about? They said, whenever you see AIVR, that's an immediate indication to call us because it means that the patient has an occlusion or a partial occlusion. We need to take that patient to the cath lab. Now, I don't know if that's common teaching amongst cardiology elsewhere, but it really made us go searching through the literature. And sure enough, AIVR is not a reliable finding that the artery has opened up. It means that there's a clot in there that needs work, but you won't know whether it's open or not until they go to the cath lab. That last point is so important, Amal, because I think if we give lytics and we see it, well, you probably are starting to break something up and we're going to be closely monitoring that patient, getting repeat ECGs and troponins. Cardiology is already going to be aware of that patient. But as a patient who comes in with chest pain or active chest pain, and then they have AIVR, but you didn't see a STEMI where cardiology is not involved. And that's a patient where we should be getting them involved because it's a sign that there is some kind of an occlusion of a coronary vessel. That's a really critical piece of teaching because I think we probably from time to time will catch that AIVR on an ECG before we know that that patient has criteria to be activated for the cath lab. Exactly. That's exactly right. So we talked with VF and VT that if you get them out of that, we don't need to start them on a drip of antidysrhythmic. 
it sounds like then that we probably aren't going to give antidysrhythmics prophylactically before they develop those dysrhythmias. But beta blockers is something we probably should be reaching for. If you have a patient with a STEMI, you're waiting for the cath lab, you're waiting to transfer them. Are you getting a beta blocker on board on those patients immediately? Yeah, routinely we're not. And that's largely because of the studies that have come out over the past handful of years that said routine use of beta blockers is really not necessary in the emergency department. Beta blockers are good. They decrease V-fib, but you don't need to routinely start them on the beta blockers. The only time I will is if I'm starting to see a lot of ventricular ectopy or short runs of VTAC. In those cases, I will. But just as a routine prophylaxis for everybody before going to cath, we do not, our cardiologists do not. At some point in the next 24 hours, when they they go upstairs, they get started on beta blockers. But in the ED, we're not. And that makes sense because they're getting a lot more information about the patient when they do the catheterization. They probably are going to get an echo. They'll know a little bit more about that patient and if beta blockers are going to be beneficial, if they're going to be harmful in any way. And we do the same thing. We defer that to the cardiologist. But I think it makes sense that if you're seeing ectopy, this is something to think about giving them that beta blocker to maybe prevent what's coming, knowing that they're almost definitely going to get a beta blocker at some point in their course. Absolutely right. Amal, we focused a lot on ventricular dysrhythmias. The article does talk a little bit about atrial dysrhythmias. The teaching that I got as a resident is that in MI, you don't see atrial dysrhythmias very often. It's really going to be ventricular dysrhythmias. Does that hold up? Will we see things like atrial fibrillation and flutter and SVT in MI, or is that going to be very uncommon? Yeah, it is pretty uncommon. Now, the the concern, of course, is back when you and I probably were in training, every time a patient came in with, say, new onset rapid AFib, and they just had palpitations, and that's the only symptom, we would always routinely rule them out. What we now know is that patients who come in with SVT or atrial flutter or AFib are very, very unlikely to be having acute coronary syndrome with uh, ruptured plaque and the whole bit, unless they also have other symptoms. And so the data has really supported the idea that you do not need to rule out for myocardial infarction patients with new SVT or new flutter or new AFib unless they have other symptoms that make you really concerned. But just palpitations that most of these patients have, the likelihood of them having an acute MI is enormously, enormously low. Summary. Some really important things to take out of this article, even though it is 23 years old, Still some great learning here, starting with the different types of ventricular tachycardia. If they have a non-sustained run of ventricular tachycardia, you really don't need to do much in terms of treatment, but look for an underlying cause, whether that be electrolytes or ischemia. Monomorphic VT, less likely to be ischemia, but it still can be. Polymorphic VT and not the prolonged QTC variety, more likely to be ischemic in nature. We should really be cautious with those patients. And whether you use electricity or you use a medication to get them out of that ventricular tachycardia, you don't need to start them on a drip afterwards. In fact, the drip might actually cause more problems than than it's really solving, so don't reach for that. And the same thing pertains to ventricular fibrillation. Once you get them out of that V-fib, you do not need to give them an antidysrhythmic, the exception of that being a beta block. Beta blockers are going to be beneficial for these patients in suppressing subsequent ventricular dysrhythmias. Even with that, if they're MI, but they don't have a dysrhythmia, you don't need to rush to give the beta blocker. You can defer that to your cardiology team. That's a reasonable thing to do. And then that teaching about accelerated idioventricular rhythm, postlytics, just remembering that AIVR can really signal that there is ongoing ischemia. If you see that without lytics, you have to be really concerned. Call your cath team. 
If you see it after Lytics, just watch that patient closely and make sure that their symptoms are getting better, their ischemic changes on their ECG are getting better, because it's not necessarily that that AIVR signals that you've won the battle, that you have fixed the patient. They still could have some ongoing ischemia. So we just need to change our teaching a little bit on that. Although we're not going to rush to treat it with antidysrhythmics, that part of the teaching holds up. Amal, again, I know this is an old article, not one that I could have gone over with you back in 1998, but I'm glad that we are discussing it now and just making sure everybody is comfortable managing these ventricular dysrhythmias when they pop up. Very well said. I, I agree. And I, I kind of missed the 90s a little bit, so <laughs> <laughs> I missed the 80s even more. I'm glad to, <laughs> glad to go back and talk about this. Well, we know where you're going once we get that time machine, going back to the <laughs> late 80s, early 90s, and I will be right alongside with you, Amal. Can't wait. Awesome. We're sending you back to the future. I find myself stuck in the middle again. That doc stuck in the middle is none other than Justin Morgenstern from First 10 EM. Justin Morgenstern. Justin Morgenstern. It was the easiest patient of the shift. She came in and she told me, I have a small bowel obstruction. I've had them before. It feels exactly the same. She probably didn't need any imaging. We can talk about that some other day. In this case, there is a CT scan. It confirms small bowel obstruction. Easy dispo. Surgeon is happy to admit. But here's the problem. The very first words out of the surgeon's mouth, this patient needs an NG tube placed before she comes up to the ward. However, the first words out of the patient's mouth were, you aren't going to shove that horrible tube up my nose again, are you? It hurts. Do I really need that? Can I just go home instead? In emergency medicine, we seem to find ourselves stuck in the middle all the time. Whether it's between two different specialists, between good medicine and an administrator, or in this case, between the desires of our patients and their specialists, we get stuck between people with differing opinions a lot. I think this is why emergency medicine is really at the forefront of evidence-based medicine for a lot of topics. When people have very strong opinions and we're stuck in between, our only recourse is to know the evidence and know it well, because that's how we get the best care for our patients. So let's look at the evidence for NG tubes for small bowel obstructions. And well, it turns out there's really no evidence. So this is going to be a little bit tough. Let's go through the few studies we have so you can make the best possible decisions for your patients. Now, the use of NG tubes for bowel obstruction seems to have originated back in the 1920s. Now, this was an era before CT. The mortality rate in the 1920s was over 40% when you were admitted to hospital with bowel obstruction. It was a very different world. Now, over the course of a couple of decades, things changed. And they changed a lot, dramatically. Surgery was evolving. Diagnostics improved. X-rays became a thing in this era. And at least at the Mass General Hospital, they started using NG tubes. And from 1920 until the end of the 1930s, mortality at Mass General from bowel obstructions dropped from 45% all the way down to 20%. That's pretty amazing. And because NG tubes had been used as part of their overall bundle of care, NG tubes just sort of became standard care. But a case series from the 1920s, from an era before CT and an era with a mortality of 20%, in an era where many other things were changing, that's really not the best evidence to base modern practice on. So let's look at some modern data. And unfortunately, there is not a single RCT looking at this practice. Despite strong opinions, despite its widespread use, there's absolutely no modern evidence that NG tubes help. 
there are two observational trials. Now, observational trials are a low level of evidence. Doctors are going to choose to put NG tubes in some patients and not in others. So the groups are going to be different. And those differences, those confounders can be really important. But the short answer is the observational data hints at harm, if anything. Study number one was Fonseca in 2013. 290 patients admitted with small bowel obstructions, about 20% are managed without an NG tube. And the use of an NG tube was associated with worse outcomes across the board. Longer time to resolution, longer length of stay, and a higher complication rate. The rate of surgery was exactly the same in both groups. And in fact, the majority of the patients who had an NG placed only had very minimal drainage, so it couldn't possibly helped. Study number two is Berman 2017. It's another retrospective chart review, 181 patients with small bowel obstruction, half of whom were treated without an NG tube. And there was no association between NG tube use and mortality, need for surgery, or need for bowel resection. Now, NG tube, again, was associated with a longer hospital length of stay. Again, this is observational data. There were baseline differences between the groups. The data was far from perfect. But we have two observational studies, and in both, the group who had NG tubes placed actually had worse outcomes. It's somewhat tangential, but prophylactic NG tubes have long been part of routine surgical care in an effort to promote earlier return of bowel function in the context of ileus after surgery. However, there's a systematic review, Nelson 2005, that looked at 28 studies, 4,000 patients, and they found the exact opposite. Ileus resolved faster in patients who did not have an NG tube placed. Their conclusion was routine nasogastric decompression does not accomplish any of its intended goals and so should be abandoned in favor of selected use of the nasogastric tube. Summary. So to summarize this, we have absolutely no idea if NG tubes help. There's just no quality evidence. The observational data actually suggests harm in longer hospital stays, longer time to resolution, and more complications, but the data is very weak. On the other hand, NG tubes clearly cause harm. NG tubes are very painful. They're routinely rated as among the very worst things that we do to patients. There's a classic survey study of adult admitted patients who had undergone various medical procedures, and the NG tube was at the very top of the list with an average pain score of 8.8 out of 10. That puts it ahead of mechanical ventilation, central lines, art lines, and foleys. Yeah, there are some ways that we can limit the pain from the procedure of an NG tube, but we generally don't do them, and they aren't perfect. You can nebulize all the lidocaine you want, an NG tube still hurts. And according to our patients, it hurts more than being intubated. So bottom line, look, there's just no good evidence. It's possible that NG tubes could help, but there's literally nothing that suggests they do help. The two observational studies that we have actually both show worse outcomes with NG tubes. But there's one thing that we know for sure, NG tubes cause harm. They are rated as among the most painful things that we do to patients. So with clear harm and absolute uncertainty about benefit, there's really probably only one ethical answer. NG tubes should not be used routinely. I don't know how to be selective about patients, maybe severe pain, maybe nausea and vomiting that isn't well controlled with antiemetics. There may be a role for selective use of NG tubes, but that is an evidence-free zone. But before NG tubes are used routinely, we must demonstrate that there's a benefit that outweighs the known harm. 
The burden of proof lies with those who are asking us to put the patient through this painful procedure. If NG tubes are as important as some surgeons think, if there's a big absolute benefit here, then it should be really, really easy to demonstrate that benefit in an RCT. However, until we see that RCT, I think it's unfair to patients to subject them to this unproven, painful procedure. I'm here today with Dr. Ali Raja, who is a professor of both emergency medicine and radiology at Massachusetts General. <laughs> Ali Raja. And today, my questions for you, Ali, are all about rib fractures. Seems like such a simple problem, a simple diagnosis to make, and yet there are some conundrums that I'd like to address. And starting with the imaging modality that we are most likely to order most frequently, which is just a simple two-view chest x-ray. How good, or maybe I should say how bad, is the chest x-ray at finding rib fractures? Well, Jess, as you might imagine, it's not all that great. And that's not just anecdotally. We've looked at this. So Rob Rodriguez out at UCSF has led this really large multi-center nexus chest study over the past decade or so. And we've collected data from a bunch of sites all across the country. And what we found is that actually what you might think is true, the chest x-ray itself, the PA and lateral chest x-ray is pretty bad at picking up rib fractures. In fact, when you compare it to chest CT, it misses, doesn't get, it misses about two-thirds of the rib fractures picked up on chest CT. But here's the catch, and what we found out is that the rib fractures that show up just on chest CT, those patients don't have any different mortality than the patients who had rib fractures show up on both chest x-ray and chest CT. So at the end of the day, the rib fractures, and there's a lot of them, two-thirds, that show up just on CT that don't show up on chest x-ray don't really matter. But technically, they're there. So like you said, there's not an increase in morbidity or mortality by missing these fractures that are small enough that you don't really even see them on a standard chest x-ray. This would imply that if it's a bad enough fracture to cause increase in morbidity or mortality, we're going to see something on that chest x-ray, whether it's a fracture, pulmonary contusion, or something else indicative that there's more serious underlying injury. That's exactly right, Jess. Now, which rib levels indicate more severe trauma? Because I know that, from what I remember, higher up means a higher mechanism, but lower down, I start to worry about ribs overlying the abdominal cavity and having some sort of concurrent intra-abdominal injury. It's funny, you know, that's exactly what I was taught as a resident too. And it turns out that a lot of the stuff that we've been taught as residents just doesn't hold water, but this actually does. What we found oh, in these nexus, yeah, right? It's, it's good to have a little bit to actually still hold on to after the years. <laughs> what we found is that if you fracture the first couple of ribs, ribs one and two, and you have enough force to break them, it doubles the chance of great vessel injury. And so if you see broken ribs one and two on your chest x-ray, yeah, get your chest CT, make sure it's with IV contrast, get an angiogram, make sure you look at those neck vessels, make sure you look at the great vessels. We didn't actually look at the lower ribs specifically to determine whether or not there was intra-abdominal injury simply because all these studies focused on, on chest trauma, but it does make sense. And for those patients, you want to make sure that you get a fast. You want to make sure you don't have any bleeding in the right upper quadrant or in the left upper quadrant. But I'm betting if these trauma patients are coming in, they've got these lower rib fractures, you're probably already doing an e-fast on them anyway. So make sure you do that. 
So let's talk about those more severe mechanisms and multi-system trauma. Walk me through when should I be really thinking about getting a CT? Because I'm not getting a CT for just the simple I ground level fall and I have focal rib pain. Obviously, we're not getting CTs for that. So when do I really need to? And, and what clinical decision tools can help me make that decision? You're exactly right. Ground level fall, one rib fracture on your chest x-ray, it hurts, but there's no reason to get a CT beyond that. But that question that you asked is exactly why we did these Nexus chest studies in the first place. So if you go to Corpendium, I think you guys are going to have these. Right now, if you go, you can go to MD Calc. There's actually two rules or two decision aids that we made from the Nexus chest CT blunt trauma decision aid that you use in a sequential fashion. The first one, if you go to MDCalc or Corpendium, you can use it and decide if your patient even needs a chest x-ray. I'm not going to go through every one of the criteria here, but they're pretty classic Nexus-type criteria. And then if your patient has a chest x-ray and it's abnormal, you go to the second decision rule and decide on whether or not that patient actually needs a chest CT. So you're absolutely right, Jess. Not every patient who has a rib fracture needs a chest CT. And we've specifically developed decision aids to help limit the use of CT in these patients. And what are some of those factors that weigh into that decision to go forward with the chest CT? So the first and, you know, sort of the most important one of these, and again, just like all decision aids, I always tell people, look these up on your phone because it's really, it's a hard thing to remember. But if you have an abnormal chest x-ray by itself, that doesn't qualify. But if that's an abnormal chest x-ray with things like clavicle fracture, a widened mediastinum, anything beyond a single rib fracture, you're going to go on and get a chest CT. If the patient has a distracting injury, a broken femur, then you're going to go on to a chest CT just because of the fact that like with the C-spine rules, a distracting injury, as we've all found, it can really keep you from noticing when you've got significant trauma. If you've got tenderness along the chest wall, the sternum, the thoracic spine, or scapular tenderness, you're going to end up going on and getting a chest CT. And then if you've got a, a rapid deceleration mechanism, so if you've got a fall from greater than 20 feet, or if you've got a motor vehicle accident at greater than 40 miles an hour with sudden deceleration, you're going to end up getting a chest CT. Again, sort of classic nexus type criteria. We worked on these for a long time. And if you've got one of those, then you're going to go on to CT. But if you don't have one of those, if you just have a single rib fracture or everything else looks fine, you do not need to go on to get a chest CT. And I think we should clarify that we are, like you said, we're accepting that in many patients, we're going to miss rib fractures. We're not going to definitively be able to tell a patient, yes, you in fact do have a rib fracture. So how does that counseling go for you when you talk to a patient and you say, look, the chest x-ray didn't show it, but I think you probably do have a rib fracture. Or how do you approach that conversation to meet their expectations of care? I think it's really important to remember that rib contusions can hurt just like small non-displaced rib fractures. And so what I tell patients is I say, look, the chest x-ray doesn't show any rib fractures, but we know that about two-thirds of these small rib fractures are missed on chest x-ray. At the end of the day, you hurt. I'm going to treat you for a rib fracture. I'm going to treat you with some pain medication. This is going to, you're going to have to make sure that you do some either incentive spirometry if you can't take deep breaths on your own or do some deep breaths on your own. And you are going to hurt for a few days, but this is going to heal. If you start having fevers, if you start having worsening trouble breathing, come back. We'll get further imaging. 
But right now, you might have a rib fracture, you might just have a bruised rib with a contusion, but I'm going to treat you the same either way. Let's go back to that patient who has a lower mechanism. I'm not going to be obtaining a CT scan, but clinically they tell me a really good story for someone who's probably going to have a rib fracture. Under what circumstances do you think it's helpful to get a rib series? Because let me tell you, I like more views. And sometimes it's one of those extra views that helps me find the fracture that I'm not sure I would have otherwise seen. Let me tell you this, Jess. At the end of the day, you should do what you feel comfortable with. And I, for one, love more views. I'm, I always love more views on, on wrist films, on femur films. If you can get more imaging views, you should. It turns out, though, that the rib series, when they're read by radiologists, and these, these studies are really limited by the fact that they're done in academic medical centers and they're read by radiologists on really ultra-sensitive monitors that can pick up all sorts of stuff that you know your workstation computer can't necessarily pick up. It turns out that rib series don't really pick up that many more or really any more rib fractures than a good PA and lateral series does when they're read by radiologists. That being said, I've done a lot of single coverage moonlighting, and if, if you're by yourself in the middle of the night reading and you really want to feel as comfortable as possible, get that rib series. It is going to double the amount of radiation, so you'll go from about one millisievert to about two millisieverts uh, when you get those additional three views for a unilateral rib series or six views for a bilateral rib series. But it's a really a small and incidental amount of increased radiation. And if it helps you and the patient feel more comfortable, go for it and get it. Just know that the evidence from big academic medical centers with highly trained radiologists reading these doesn't show that they add much. That's interesting that you bring up the amount of radiation because more and more I'm seeing these lower radiation protocols for CT scans. And I was wondering if there is a role here for certain protocols to pick up rib fractures. There definitely are, Jess. You're right. These ultra-low-dose CTs are really amazing. We use them a lot for renal stones. You've probably seen them for kids as well. It turns out that, like I said, it's about a millisievert for a chest X-ray. It's about a millisievert additional for the rib series. And these ultra-low-dose CT protocols can get down to just a little more than two millisieverts. So around two to two and a half millisieverts. Now, they don't pick up all the things that your trauma CT scan is going to pick up, but they'll pick up bony injury-like rib fractures. And so if you have the right protocols, and this isn't, this isn't new and fancy technology, it's protocols for the existing CT scanners. If you can work with your radiologist to protocolize ultra-low-dose chest CT to look for things like rib fractures, then it often will get you just as little radiation as a chest x-ray with a rib series will. So that's, of course, looking at it from the single perspective of radiation exposure, but there's other things to think about as well, like the cost to the patient and the time for obtaining a CT. So obviously, a lot of things go into this decision of which imaging modality that you're going to be choosing, big academic center versus solo coverage overnight. All of these are factors. And it also, you know, clinically doesn't actually matter too much at the end of the day, since either way, they're going to be going home with some pain meds and an incentive spirometer. So it's just something to consider and know that there are those low dose protocols if that's a diagnosis that's really important for you or for the patient to make. 
You are exactly right, Jess. I think ultra low dose CT matters a lot when you're going to get the CT anyway, like on somebody who you're going to get a renal protocol CT to look for stone. Sure, let's get the dose down as small as we can. But if you can actually avoid the CT altogether, just getting a chest x-ray or not any imaging at all in some patients, then don't make your patient get a CT. Don't wait. Don't tie up the CT scanner just because you can get it. You nailed it. Now, any conversation about imaging would be remiss to exclude the zero radiation exposure protocol, which is ultrasound. Is there a role here for ultrasound? Should I, should I be busting out the ultrasound probe to try to make this diagnosis? There is always a role for ultrasound, Jess. I love ultrasound. It's fantastic. I'm pretty sure there's a role for ultrasound in just about anything. In this case, there's actually a bunch of studies that actually show that ultrasound is highly sensitive for picking up rib fractures. Now, the catch is that those ultrasounds are often done by trained ultrasonographers or radiologists who specialize in ultrasound or emergency physicians who specialize in ultrasound, and sensitivity is amazing for them. But if you ask any one of your colleagues who specializes in ultrasound, they'll say that even more than your typical ultrasound, ultrasound for rib fractures is exceptionally operator and and patient habitus dependent. Remember, for this, you actually need to trace over each rib. You need to take your hand and sort of rest it on the rib and follow it with the ultrasound probe. And keep in mind, in some cases, you're going to be going over areas that are significantly traumatized, and it's going to be really painful for the patient. So the patient's going to be moving around. It's also easy to mix yourself up when you're following the ribs. So if you can kind of imagine you're following the third rib with your probe, and you move a centimeter off, and all of a sudden, you're looking at the fourth rib, and you didn't even realize that you're now missing the rest of your third rib. So it takes a lot of time. You have to do it slowly and carefully, and it can hurt the patient. And then the biggest issue is that it's easy to find false positives. It turns out that a costochondral junction can actually look like a fracture, and contusions can look like fractures. So you can have these false positives that end up as not actually being rib fractures when you get further advanced imaging. That being said, for somebody who's highly trained, who does this a lot, she or he can pick up these rib fractures with almost as high a sensitivity as any other imaging modality. I would love to say I'm at that level, but in reality, I am fairly basic when it comes to ultrasound, so I don't know that that will be the diagnostic study of choice for me. But hey, you know, the more times that you put the probe on a patient and look, even when you're not totally comfortable with doing the exam, as long as you're not using that to definitively make your decision, well, the more practice you get, the better. So maybe I'll start looking, and maybe one day I will get to that point. Summary. But for now, I am going to be starting in general with a chest x-ray, PA and lateral. And if I really feel like I need those additional views and I'm not in the academic center with the radiologist backing up my read, I may go ahead and add on that rib series knowing the evidence is not strongly supportive of that practice. Patients with higher mechanisms of trauma are going to need a chest CT, but we should know that if we happen to pick up a high-level rib fracture, ribs number one or two, That is someone who's at increased risk for having a more severe trauma and especially needs imaging of their great vessels. So they're going to get a CT chest and include angio up through the neck. And finally, I know that this segment is about imaging for rib fractures, but let's remember that sometimes you don't really need any imaging at all. The patient looks well, is comfortable, is breathing fine, has a good story for a rib fracture. Well, You could just treat them as such, give them some pain medicine, an incentive spirometer, and good return precautions. Am I missing anything? 
just how amazing ultrasound is and that if you're trained in it and you are comfortable using it and you've practiced a bunch on people who don't have rib fractures and know what normal and abnormal looks like, you should feel comfortable doing it. The studies support it. But you're right. Like you and me, if we don't do a lot of these all the time, we're going to end up with false positives. And it's really, it's kind of difficult to do. All right. Well, thanks again for this insightful discussion on imaging for rib fractures. I have to say it's also quite self-serving because I've had this question on my mind for a long time and I finally got some questions answered. Back in September 2021, we had Chris Hicks and Andrew Petrosoniak on discussing their article detailing the latent errors that are present in trauma resuscitation, focusing on the environment, communication, and equipment. Clearly important to find the errors and find fixes, but just as important is talking about how a resuscitation is run right. And so that's what we're going to get into today. I've got Andrew Petrosoniak back on, and I really appreciate you coming back on to really dive into the right way, the smooth way to run these resuscitations. Andrew Petrosoniak. Yeah, thanks for having me, Swami. It's a pleasure to be back. Andrew, let's start with the physical space. Physical space. In the ideal situation, what should the recess space look like? There's probably not a, a right answer across the board for all institutions. I think what matters first is who's going to use it and what will it be used for? And so we talked last time about a trauma bay or a trauma room, but I think the way that that space looks in contrast to if you do both medical and trauma recess, I mean, there's going to be some differences. There's a couple of concepts and principles that I think are pretty generalizable across uh, whether you have a, a medical space, a medical resuscitation, a trauma resuscitation, or a combination of the two. Number one, having 360-degree access or near 360-degree access to the patient is key. And people have tried different positions of the uh, bed in the room, whether it's off on an angle or whatnot. But you know, you look to uh, most operating rooms, and it's very easy to get to the patient in most with nearly 360 degree access. And you can only imagine when you're trying to get to the airway, and you have multiple people up there, and you need you know you're doing a double setup, or you're you're trying to keep the patient uh, in C spine precautions. Just having access to the patient, the head of the bed, is absolutely critical. So that that's sort of number one, and and it's so easy for the designs to kind of encroach on particularly around the head of the bed. And I think that that's something that you know, should be an immediate flaw in a design that we recognize and, and should be fixed. The other thing that we've identified and most people I think would agree with is optimizing sight lines to patient vital signs. I mean, they're called vital signs for a reason. So we should all be able to see those for basically any space in the room. And so this idea, this notion that we only have vital sign monitors, and we spoke about this last time, vital sign monitors at the head of the bed is is antiquated in, in our opinion. You know, to ensure that you have 360-degree access, you really do need task-based carts that move in and out depending on the work that you're doing. So rather than placing everything right around the bedside in kind of a stationary, non-movable space, because of the complexity of the patients that we're seeing now, to be able to accurately predict exactly what you're going to be doing at all areas is just not feasible. So, you know, on a trauma patient, you may need a chest tube versus you may need an art line versus a cordis or something like that. So you can't accurately predict. So having movable or and modular task-based carts that can be brought in and then moved out is really key. And then I think 
really a careful uh, design to how we lay out equipment in the space. So we have integrated a high-frequency cart and cabinet that stays right near the foot of the bed. It is far enough away that people can pass through it without any issues, but it carries all the equipment that we use regularly, but we don't need immediately. Things like gauze and staplers, uh, this is we're talking about in trauma, sterile gloves, all those kinds of accessories that we use regularly. And we don't want people wandering all over the trauma bay looking for it. But at the same time, we've prioritized them in a way that is different from, you know, we don't rapidly need a Thomas splint to put a to reduce a femur fracture, we have a few minutes for that. So we've purposely decided to move that further away. And then one of my big pet peeves is how we label in healthcare. And, you know, I'm sure this is pretty common across North America. Labeling of equipment is designed for those who are stocking the space, not for the clinicians who are using it. So, you know, we have wonderful barcodes that are labeled that mean nothing to any of us who are trying to provide care. And so developing a strategy where it can be, you know, clinician focused rather than stocking friendly is really, I think, important. And then the last kind of two things that we, we have found and, and believe, if you want people to do things, make it easy for them. For instance, if you want people to put on PPE when they move into the space, whether it be a medical space or a, a trauma space, then put that up front and do it in a sequence that makes sense for them. So for instance, we, we put on our lead before we put on our gowns. And so put the lead before the gowns so that you know, people can move through in a sequence that makes sense. And finally, and there's been a little bit about this in social media, and, and we find that it works quite well, but lines on the floor. And, you know, there's people have different opinions about that. But we use the lines on the floor to help create social norms. So we have different lines on the floor of our trauma bay that allows us to kind of nudge people to doing certain things, behaviors. So we created a circle of care right around each trauma patient. And so we know who's in that circle and who, you know, it, you kind of make a conscious effort or a conscious move to get inside the space if you're providing care. And, and otherwise, the team can kind of tell you, hey, you know, if you're not in, in the circle, or if you're not providing care, then just step outside the circle. And we have some other lines that sort of just help orient people fairly easily to where they should or shouldn't be standing. Because we know where there's going to be a gathering of people. And then, and then that way, you know, when you have gatherings of people, it can kind of hinder care. So those are kind of six or seven different high-level general principles that I think really can help optimize your space. The two things you said right up front, Petro, were really critical in my mind. The monitor being somewhere that everybody can see it. And then that crowding around the head of the bed in the 360-degree access. I'm sure you've had this experience. I can't imagine how many other people out there have had this experience of trying to get to the head of the bed, whacking your head on the monitor, and then tripping over a bunch of the cords and tubes that are laying around that head of the bed area and, and how we have to design that space better to actually be able to access what could be the most critical part of the patient while we're resuscitating them. So there's some basic things in there that we can really do. But some of the things that you lay out really would need us to completely tear down our existing environments and restructure them, which many of us can't do. We don't have the opportunity to blow up our trauma bays and then recreate them. We talked about a lot of the changes in August as well as now. Which of these things do you think we can apply regardless of whether we can start from scratch or not? 
the opportunity of installing another monitor is really not a difficult task. In fact, we did this in our old trauma bay, and and often all it needs to be is a mirror of the existing monitor. And so that with very limited and minimal cost and infrastructure, that can be done relatively easily. So I think that there's high value there. You know, the idea of redesigning carts, I think, is very within the realm of a low-cost intervention and making things labeled clearly, I believe, is is really critical. And that that costs, you know, just whatever it costs to print colorful and great-looking labels. And then reorienting your space so that your high-value or high-use equipment and being being thoughtful about it is sort of repositioned into a space that makes it easy to grab and just not subtle. If you walk into our trauma bay and you look for our chest tube carts, it is so blatantly obvious where the chest tube carts is because it just like it, there's it just in big white letters on the side of the chest tube cart it just says chest tube. If you can read, you can find the chest tube cart anywhere in our trauma bay. So you can add in things for low costs yet still have pretty good return on investment. And the value of making things easy to find is that you then don't need to spend time educating people during your training sessions about where to find things. Instead, you can spend time on actually getting better at those procedures. So I think that's something that that is worthwhile. Look into that space and think clean lines, you know, lack of clutter, that's going to help you more than anything. So I think we can start with some of that low-hanging fruit. Restructure your procedure carts, make them mobile. That's a pretty inexpensive intervention. Good labeling. I mean, you're talking about getting a relatively cheap label maker or just printing out some big signs that go on those carts telling you what's in them. And then the floor markings, that's another one that is super inexpensive. You get some gaffer tape, lay that down in different areas. So those are some things that you can do without really making big investments into the space. And then you'll see how much of a, of a difference that can make. The monitors, I think, would be a huge win to have monitors in a place where the person at the head of the bed can always see them. It's a little bit more costly, but it definitely can be done. Communication. And some of this also feeds into the second thing that I want to discuss, Petro, which is communication. When we chatted back in September, that was a big thing that you guys focused on, how we communicate with each other in these teams. And I think it's easy to see the physical or the equipment issues, but communication can sometimes be a bit trickier. So break down some of the best practices that you guys have structured in terms of communication in that resuscitation. With good communication, you can overcome some of the design flaws in your space, though ideally you work the reverse. You can mitigate some of the communication deficits that inevitably will occur when you're under stress because you have great design. And, and, and so that just requires you know a long and more thoughtful process in, in place. But when you start talking about communication and crisis, I mean, one of the first things and one of the key things that we've implemented, and, and to be honest, had a bit of a delay in, in sort of the uptake, and we've just reintegrated it, and it's now being led by our nurses, is that they prompt us for a pre-brief prior to the, the patient arriving. And it's very simple, very straightforward. We ask four questions. What do we know? So what do we know about the patient? What are our anticipated priorities? And then what do we need? So what extra equipment is needed? Do we need blood? Do we need specific, you know, do we need chest tube tray, that kind of stuff? And then ensuring who's here and making sure that we all know who's here, who's not, and are we all in PPE? And so those are like the first four very quick questions that are asked. Honestly, this takes about 30 seconds and it's usually led by one of our team leads. And, and that way it's kind of a co-model and it works really quite well. 
And I think this idea, like when you're in a crisis, this pre-brief, when, when you have the opportunity to, obviously I understand that you don't always, but even if the patient arrives, being able to script out, you know, to use Hicks, he'll call it the first five, but whatever it might be, the first five minutes, the first few steps, if you can script that out for your team so that they know what they need to do, at least for the first three, four, five minutes, so that you can then, as the team leader, intake the information, because there's an inevitably going to be more information that you get in those first few minutes that you didn't have prior, that will buy you a few minutes so that you can uh, make a better decision. And what this does is these first few steps, these first five minutes, allows you to undertake activities that kind of promote safety, are low-risk interventions, and it's better than doing nothing at all. But it's also, you know, that way you don't have people going rogue. So you give them a task, you let them do it, and then at five minutes, they report back to you. And so that's sort of one of the, you know, we, we start with a pre-brief, and then we go ahead and we script out those first five minutes. And when we do this, we also try and anticipate kind of key decision points and be upfront about what those decision points are. And by doing so, it kind of eliminates like the emotional element to decision-making when you're doing it on the fly. You know, if you have a patient coming in in a traumatic cardiac arrest, and you know that up front, you've heard that from EMS, I'm going to, before that patient arrives, I'm going to tell my team what I expect about CPR, because that's going to be a big hurdle for some folks, particularly for ad hoc teams that, you know, we don't all work together all the time, so they don't understand my mental model about how I take care of a traumatic cardiac arrest. So if if in the heat of the moment, I tell somebody to stop doing CPR, they're going to wonder, like, am I on crack? Like, what am I talking about? This patient doesn't have a pulse. But if I can do that ahead of time, I set the stage and they understand where I'm coming from. And whether I give them the why at that moment or say, hey, listen, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to tell you why in a bit. But for the purposes of this resuscitation, we're going to hold CPR as soon as EMS moves that patient over to the new stretcher because we're going to do X, Y, and Z. It's far better to do that up front than it is doing CPR and you're like, stop, stop, stop. People just, it's just confusing for people. Having that shared mental model of how you're going to run things differently is so critical. Just as you said, it it can really throw a team off when you do things differently, unless you prep the team and let them know, I am going to be doing this a little bit differently. This is what I'm going to be doing instead of what you may have seen in the past. And understanding that you have to give the explanation at some point of why you're doing that. So people understand that process. One of the other things that we've talked about in the past is the cognitive limitations that we have during a resuscitation. When our adrenaline is really pumping through our veins, we don't have the same amount of concentration focus, and that can lead to some communication issues as well. We have to understand limitations of our colleagues as humans. And one of the elements, the the concept of a serial position effect, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but this is the idea that we're more likely to recall the first and last thing in a series of items that we list out. So if I list out to one of my nurses to grab ketamine, rock, fentanyl, you know, propofol for an infusion after induction, and, you know, ANSEF or something, I've just listed out five items. They're probably going to remember the ketamine and, and the ANSEF. So they're more likely to remember the first and last things in a series. What we try and teach our teams and what we try and espouse is that we only go with, you know, at max three items 
but preferably two. And so you just give two items that you want because otherwise what you're doing is you're allowing your team members to prioritize for you. And it may be a subconscious prioritization. It just might be because that's what they remember. And so suddenly you might have ketamine and ANSEF for your induction, and which is not exactly what you're looking for. <laughs> and so if you can realize that the, the serial position effect is real, and, and so don't put people in a position to prioritize for you. If you're the team lead, you are in charge of prioritization and pick what exactly is key and make sure that, you know, give them two actions. And then when they're done with those, then move along. The other thing that I think as a team leader is, this is probably one of the most important phrases that I've integrated, and I've learned this from Chris Hicks, is at some point in the resuscitation, establishing psychological safety with a, a phrase, what am I missing? And the reason, you know, many of us will say things like, is there anything else we're missing or anything else, things like that, which are good. But the idea that you use the word I in there and you say, what am I missing? It implies that one, that you are missing something, and that two, that is you as the leader that's missing something, and that you're open to hearing back from your team members exactly what it is that you're missing. And I have an example of, you know, I think one of the very first times I was a staff doing a thoracotomy, all we got was that the patient was going to, you know, was a penetrating stab wound coming in quite sick, hypotensive. And we did our pre-brief. We did all the things that we were just talking about. And then I said, what am I missing? And one of our nurses, who's exceptional, said to me, Andrew, what about if we lose a pulse? And I'm like, oh, yeah, totally. We've got to make sure the thoracotomy tray is at least available. Or And so by me opening that up, I allowed for, and ultimately the patient did lose a pulse, and we were fully prepared for that moment. And so creating that psychological safety with what am I missing is absolutely key. And then Delegating things to a pre-departure checklist is things that really don't matter in the moment, but should be done at some point in the patient's care, like you know, making sure if, if antibiotics are needed, making sure that's the case, making sure you know, that somebody has a plan to update the family, all of the things that don't need to be done immediately in the heat of the moment, but that you know, a pilot would never not use their pre-departure, pre-takeoff checklist or landing checklist because they just need to go through those motions. And so we would do the same and we, we advise the same and, and we use it. I mean, I think our compliance with our pre-departure checklist in our trauma bay is probably about 95% from what our team has told us recently. So those are kind of a few items that I think are really critical to improving communication. Game plan. Petro, one of the things that I've noticed in my resuscitations when I'm doing this communication is being really explicit about next steps. So you talked about laying out some of that first five minutes, the first five things that you're going to do, similar to what we hear about in football. The first five plays are laid out. We're going to do this. We're going to execute our game plan. But sometimes things change. So you might say, you know, this patient's got a penetrating injury. They're hypotensive. They're hypoxic. We're going to intubate the patient. But then the intubation doesn't go the way that you wanted to. So how do you communicate? If this happens, then I'm going to move to this next step. Explicitly outlining ahead of time, even just the minute before you proceed with intubation, at what point in that intubation, let's imagine that there's some desaturation, will you pivot on your approach? Meaning, will you start to bag the patient? Will you proceed with a crike? Will you go with an LMA? Whatever it might be, but change in your action. Because so commonly, 
we get to the sats are dropping and we're aware of that. And But you're kind of like, I'm almost through the chords. And suddenly like 85% doesn't sound that bad because you were just at 86. And so you've reframed a little bit what that 86 and 85 aren't that different. And maybe it's not that bad to kind of carry on. And so what I've tried to do, and I'll, and I'll actually delegate this to usually one of our nurses, I'll have them call out whatever it is, the threshold that we said, I'll say, you know, if we hit 80%, I want you to, to tell me to stop and we're going to go to bag the patient or we're going to go to an LMA or whatever the situation calls for so that I'm being held accountable as the team lead or I'm being held accountable as the airway person that the moment that happens, you know, maybe I make a decision to kind of carry on for whatever reason, but at least the default is that we're going to go back to something that is safe. And so having, whether it be a blood pressure that, you, you know, you want to change your approach once you hit a certain threshold, whether it be an oxygen saturation, a heart rate, whatever it might be, or a time in the trauma bay or in your resuscitation space, like, you know, I'm going to take three minutes to put in an art line. If it's not in, we're just going to keep going to CT. So we call out those times so that the team is held accountable and they know exactly what they're going to be waiting for. Summary. We've talked about this before too, with things like the intraosseous line in pediatric resuscitation or, or any resuscitation, the one, two IO, you get two shots at that IV and then we're moving to an IO and offloading that decision to somebody else. That's really important. The offloading of that decision or kind of putting it in a position where you answer to somebody else. Somebody else can tell you, we're done with this. We need to move on because that external control is really important. And Petra, there's so many other things that communication that you discussed that I think are really vital. The pre-brief, you know, we talked about the zero point survey with Cliff Reed over a year ago and how that's so important for us to have that shared mental model going into the resuscitation. We talk all the time about shared mental models, but you have to think about how we're going to do that. Taking a couple of minutes before the resuscitation to make sure everybody's on the same page with that resuscitation is important. You guys also talked about in the past segment when people enter the room, after that resuscitation has started, how do you get them into that shared mental model using a whiteboard to recap what the patient presentation was so that everyone's not asking again and again, what's going on, what's going on, what's going on. These communication pieces are so important. And unlike some of the physical pieces that you talked about, these don't cost money. They cost investment of some thought and some time, but they don't cost money, which means that no matter what situation you're in, you can make these communication changes happen. You just have to commit yourself to doing it. At the same time, there are some of these physical changes that we can do that are relatively low cost or no cost. Things like laying down that little bit of tape to cordon off the area where resuscitation is actively going on, changing your procedure carts, which is a minor investment of money, but a huge benefit, putting up big signage, telling people where things are so that when I ask even the medical student who's been in the department for three minutes to grab me a chest tube tray, it's very clear where that chest tube tray is, where that person can go to retrieve that equipment that we vitally need. And then, of course, for those of you who are actually looking at restructuring your department, about teardowns in new departments and, and putting them together, really think explicitly about what's best for the function of the team, what's best for the clinician, not necessarily what's best for an administrator, what's best for the person who's stocking the place, but really uh, thinking about what's going to be better for running that resuscitation. I think if we put that thought into the process before we get into it, we can really make some, some drastic changes and some drastic improvements in how we run these resuscitations. 
And Petro, I, I'm so happy that we get to talk about this because I think we don't spend enough time thinking about how our physical space might not be the way that we want it to be, that our communication is not the way we want it to be. We really look forward to hearing more from you guys on the research you're doing and the best things that we can do, the best practices to improve the way our resuscitations run. Thanks so much for coming on and doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me, Swami. It was a pleasure. Pediatric Seizures, Part 2 Let's get back to our discussion on pediatric seizures. In part one, Jason and Jan told us about new definitions where basically I learned that everything I know is wrong. That, of course, is due to the fine work of everyone here at the International League Against Epilepsy. And some common seizure mimics. Now we're going to talk about the workup of the first time non-febrile seizure in kids in the emergency department. Some of this was covered in the December 2020 MRAP. But you know what? We're going to do a little bit of it again because repetition is a good thing. Repetition is a good thing. Full space repetition. Here's Jason and Jan to continue the discussion on not just the workup, but all the good stuff that comes after that. What do we do? What's the follow-up? What about medications? Do tell. Okay, so let's say that we, we whatever the episode was, we've determined that this is concerning for a seizure. Mm -hmm. Is there any sort of workup that goes along with the first time what you think is an unprovoked seizure? And are there things that I need to be worried about? Are there any sort of can't-miss diagnoses that I have to determine before I send them out from wherever I am? Do all these kids need to be admitted? Do they all just have outpatient follow-ups? Sort of, what's the approach here? What do we do? Yeah, <laughs> please help me. <laughs> There's answers to all of those questions, Ooh. so that's good. American Academy of Neurology came up with guidelines in 2000 and re-advised them recently. And then the American Academy of Pediatrics has them also. And I think the big picture piece is that if you have a kid who comes in with a first time seizure or something that you think might have been a seizure and they're all the way back to themselves and their baseline themselves is a normal kid, you can probably defer a lot of what you need to do to that patient setting. If they don't come back to themselves or they come back to themselves and themselves is not a normal neurologic exam, then you need to think about that more and they probably don't get to go home right away because there's probably something else going on that we're missing. Right. So seizures, like we talked about, are transient, right? Your brain is sort of doing its thing. And then all of a sudden, it's like very much not doing its thing and going crazy for a period of time. And then it should go back to itself. And everybody's probably pretty familiar with that. Like getting back to yourself part can take some time, right? It's very common for people to be sleepy and groggy and those kinds of things. But eventually, usually over a period of an hour or two, maybe a little bit longer, sometimes kids will come back to who they were before and they'll be running around the ER and the parents are like, why are we here? Can we go home? <laughs> So a well-appearing child over the age of one who has completely returned to baseline and has a normal neurologic exam, you could stop there. You could send them to outpatient neurology for follow-up. Now, what about all of those neurologic tests that we can do, but should we do them? When should we do them? The guidelines kind of talk about all the things that we think about when we see a kid with seizures and I sort of call it the neurology trifecta, right? Like, should we do an LP, an EEG, and an MRI? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> those were the three things right? I was going to specifically <laughs> yes. call out to you. Yeah. So should we do all of those things? Like, we're neurologists. You know, oh, it's, this is a neurologic problem. Let's do all the things where we look at the nervous system. The neurologic trifecta, lumbar puncture. I think the, the first one and the one that probably is sort of the most urgent is like, do we need an LP, right? Like, does this seizure mean that this kid has meningitis or something like that? Do I need to evaluate that urgently? 
I think in younger babies, so definitely anybody under the age of six months, where we just like our exam is not as reliable for meningitis or signs of CNS infections, everybody would feel a little bit nervous if we didn't do an LP or at least think strongly about it in an infant that young. In anybody between six months and 12 months, it's a little bit like more gray. And I think it probably depends on who you talk to. Anybody older than that, we should have some reliable-ish signs that we're looking at some kind of CNS infection, right? Fevers or altered mental status or, you know, more multiple seizures, uh, something, you know, rash, whatever, something like that that tells us that this kid is infected. And so those are the things that really should guide your workup. So I think it's mostly age and then sort of like what the kid looks like and kind of what your gut tells you. The Neurologic Trifecta, MRI. I get asked this question a lot by families. Mm -hmm. How do we know it's not a tumor? Yes. It's not a tumor. Yeah, so that gets to the imaging piece. <laughs> so again, it has a lot to do with what the kid looks like after the seizure, right? So in a previously normal healthy kid who has a single seizure, even if that seizure sounds focal, right? I think a lot of times we think like, oh, well, if, if we think it's focal, right? If it was just one arm or just one leg that was involved, that implies that there's one very specific part of the brain that's not working. And gosh, you know, that part of the brain might be a tumor. Right. It's a tumor. And so everybody thinks that. I mean, that's on our brains, too, when we get a call about a focal seizure. It's like, mm, are we, is there something in there that we just don't know about yet? But most of the time, the vast majority of the time, it's not going to change anything we do in that moment. So in the studies that actually looked at this, when they did imaging after a first-time unprovoked seizure in kids, the imaging was abnormal like up to a third of the time. We found something that was like, well, that's not totally normal. But less than 2% of the time did it change anything that we did. And 0% and of the time did it change anything that we did in that moment, right? So that 2% could have been like, oh, yep, we actually discovered that this is a tumor, but no one's taking you to the operating room in the next five minutes. Like, you know, we're going to do more workup and evaluation and all of these kinds of things to figure this out. So the likelihood that an MRI is going to change your management in the ER is pretty low if the kid is otherwise normal and looks really good. Right. And these aren't the patients, you know, who the, they wake up from their seizure and then say, like, actually, I've been having progressive headaches times a month and, you know, it makes me puke all the time and it changes every time I stand up. Like, that, that's a very different story from really not much leading up to it, had this strange event that sounds like a seizure and then is mostly back to normal. Yeah. Yeah. Now, a lot of folks work in, in institutions where, I mean, even here, we don't have generally 24-7 access to an MRI. And even even when the techs are available, there's not always the spot. So, you know, what, what about places that don't have access to it? And where is a CT useful? Yeah. So in general, it's mostly not, right? Like if an MRI is not going to help you, then a CT is probably not going to help you because the MRI is the more detailed study. And there actually were, you know, they did a bunch of studies looking at this before we really had widespread use of MRI. And so there's some pretty good data out there that says even if you just use CTs or you didn't even think about MRIs, you were in a place that only had them, really the likelihood that it's going to change your management actually is close to zero, sort of regardless, right? Because you're not going to pick up the subtle structural thing that's been there that, that kid's whole life that, you know, is going to change the conversation at some point, but not for you in the emergency room. So I think CTs are helpful if you are worried about increased ICP, right? So, if, you know, like your example, right? If the kid wakes up and is like, oh, yeah, and like I've had new headaches for the last two weeks and they've been getting worse and I woke up in the middle of the night the last three nights and threw up and, you know, and then you're like, well, okay, something else is going on. I need to get a CT and make sure this kid doesn't have like acute 
impending, you know, hydrocephalus herniation badness that needs to be evaluated right away. And then certainly if there's any history of trauma or if you are suspicious that there might be some trauma. So that's where the imaging comes in for babies, right? So anybody under the age of one and your suspicion for the possibility of abusive head trauma and child abuse has to at least be on your list. And so if you don't feel like you know, you have a normal looking baby, a normal exam. And, you know, if, if anything about your gut just tells you that something isn't right, then a CT is, is what you yeah, want. Those um, kids less than one. I, I think we CT a lot yeah. looking for that because you just, you don't have yeah. much to go on. It's hard to know. Physical wise. Yeah. And, and that's probably okay. You know, I know we, we've really had a big push in the ER to reduce the number of CT scans that we're doing across the board. But the low hanging fruit for that was like the kid who bumped their head and has no symptoms, but has a worried family that shows up into the ER. And a lot of those were getting scanned for no reason. Like mm-hmm. Kids that have a seizure and still aren't acting right or are maybe too young, that, that's a different group and a, a different risk profile. The neurologic trifecta, EEG. All right, well, what about EEG? Yeah. You know, and I'm coming at this from the point where my skill at looking at an EEG is I can usually tell full body generalized tonic clonic on the EEG, but it's usually typically pretty obvious clinically to me that the patient's shaking everywhere. And outside <laughs> of that, I I don't see a whole lot in those. Yeah, fair enough. So EEGs are not super helpful if you're in the ER unless you think the kid is in status epilepticus. When they've been done after a first time unprovoked seizure and sort of like otherwise healthy, you know, normally developed kids, they are almost always abnormal in the first couple of days after the seizure, right? Because you have disrupted this sort of brain electrochemistry thing that you've got going on, and all of those neurons have to sort of like reset themselves. So it's pretty common. But most of the time, that abnormality is just that the EEG looks kind of slow, which is really nonspecific, right? Like, no, big surprise, you had a seizure, your brain's not really working the way that it should be right now. Great, I don't really know what to do with that. So we almost never get them in the ER. And really, the only reason to get one is if we're worried that there's ongoing seizures, right? So if the kid isn't clearing, if they're not waking up, if there's a question of like, are they still having subtle seizures that we are missing, those kinds of things. And we will usually say like, we want to get it at least a week or two after when the kid is otherwise well, because then we can really see like, what does your baseline brain look like? Is there irritability in there that helps us figure out that yes, it was a seizure or what your risk is moving forward? Or potentially help us diagnose like an epilepsy syndrome like absence epilepsy or something like that. Fortunately, we can generally focus our assessment on history and physical and keep the work up to a minimum unless there's any of the aforementioned red flags. Now let's talk about medications. Who, if anyone, should be started on medications? Who should get rescue medications? So we have our patient who's returned to baseline I think it's a seizure. I've determined that we don't need to do an LP or additional head imaging or an EEG, and I'm going to send them to you in follow-up. Is there anything else that I need to do before they go home? Is there anything that's helpful to you on referral? So the treatment piece, some families are like, okay, well, I don't ever want this to happen again, so we need a medicine today. And the truth of the matter is like, yeah, sure. If you put somebody on a seizure medicine after their first seizure, it's probably going to prevent them from having more seizures. Like seizure medicines work a fair, you know, not all the time, but a fair amount of the time. And so it's probably going to work. But once you've had one seizure, your risk of having another one is probably somewhere in the like 40 to 45 percent range, which means that there's over a 50 percent chance that you don't have another seizure. So then you've been put on this medicine and maybe you never have another one and now you are out of medicine with side effects and all those kinds of things. And the risks of waiting until somebody has a second unprovoked seizure are pretty much nil aside from like the safety piece of it, right? So there's no evidence out there to say that 
starting a medicine after the first seizure or the second seizure has any effect on your long-term prognosis with your epilepsy. So we usually, and the recommendations would say, and the evidence would say that you don't start a daily seizure medicine after the first seizure and you wait until they have their second one. Once you've had a second one, your risk for having more goes up to like 80%. And so then we sort of say, well, gosh, we're pretty worried you're going to have more. So you probably need a medicine to try and prevent this. So when it comes to starting a daily anti-epileptic after the first seizure, no, not recommended. You don't have to do it. You shouldn't do it. But that doesn't mean you have to send the patient and their family out empty-handed. Let's talk about rescue medications. So we use rectal diastat or intranasal Versed are the two rescue medicines that we tend to prescribe here. And I usually base that decision on the age and sort of the functional status of the child. So there is uh, one of my residents the other day when we were talking about it was like, oh, yeah, diapers for diastat. And I was like, what? And she's like, oh, yeah, if you're in diapers, you get diastat. And I was like, oh, it's not a bad way to think about it. So we usually give the rectal diastat to the younger kids. And you can imagine if you are a nine-year-old who's in school, who is going home with a rescue medicine, you probably don't want that rescue medicine to be one that involves someone pulling your pants down and administering a rectal medication while you're in the middle of the playground or something like that. So it gets a reasonable assumption. Right. Yes. So depending on the parent's preference and the age of the child and sort of, you know, how typically developed that kid is and what everyone thinks is reasonable, we will choose either diastat or the intranasal versed. The diastat's a little bit easier to give because it comes pre-filled and pre-measured from the pharmacy and it's like locked at the exact dose that we prescribe. So you can't really mess it up from a dosing standpoint. The intranasal Versed is a little bit trickier because we use the IV formulation. So it comes in a little vial and depending on where you work and how savvy and awesome your pharmacists are, Sometimes you have to draw up the dose from the vial and then you have to take the needle off and then you have to put the atomizer on and then you have to squirt it, half of it in one nostril and half of it in the other nostril. And that's kind of a lot of steps for a family in the middle of a seizure, right? When they're, you know, even if we've said like, be calm and watch the clock and keep them safe, they're still freaking out about it. What's your instructions to the family about when to use these rescue medicines? Yeah. So we tell them any seizure lasting longer than five minutes. And the reason for that is that the vast majority of seizures stop within a minute or a minute and a half. So most seizures are self-limited. We know that if a seizure goes on for more than five minutes, statistically, it's less likely to stop on its own without some kind of intervention. So that's sort of our cutoff. And then what I also tell families, because we always get the question of like, are these seizures causing brain damage, right? Everybody wants to know that. And I think in, in the lab and in studies, we know that if you've been seizing for 30 or 40 or 50 minutes, like it's probably not good for your brain and you could be at risk for having sort of irreversible injury. And so what I often tell families is we don't want to get to 30 minutes, so let's intervene at five (laughs) so that we never make it there. So there is one thing that you can do for families, and that's prescribe a rescue medication. At least that's something that can make them feel a little bit empowered in a situation that may otherwise feel helpless. Let's talk about discharge instructions and in particular activity restrictions. The way that I talk about it with families is that it's really common sense, right? So if you're not sure whether they should do XYZ activity, the way you should think about it is if my child were to have a seizure doing this, could they hurt themselves or could they hurt somebody else? And if the answer to either of those questions is yes, then we either shouldn't do it or we have to make sure we put some precautions in place so that it's safe. And the biggest ones for younger kids is usually water. So We talk about bathtubs and we talk about pools. And I think, you know, I tell families, like, even if you're at a community pool and there's five lifeguards, like, I don't care. I want you or an adult who is responsible and can 
rescue the child with that child if there's a risk for seizures. And, you know, same thing for the bathtub, right? Like you are not allowed to take a bath by yourself. You like not even I'm going to run down the hall and grab a towel out of the dryer really quickly. Like, nope, they someone has to be in there the whole time with them because that could be life threatening. In older kids, it's a little bit trickier. The bathtub issue is easier because we just say like, sorry, don't take a bath, take a shower, right? You're not you're probably not going to drown in the shower. Thank goodness. And if you try and tell a 16 year old that their mom has to sit in the bath with them, they're <laughs> yeah, going to be like, nope, that's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. So showers, no baths. In older kids, we talk about heights, right? So if you were in the top of a tree and you had a seizure and fell down, you could die potentially. And so those kinds of things are probably off limits. And then most other regular activities, you know, if you're riding a bike and you're wearing a helmet, always wearing a helmet and you fall off because you had a seizure, like you're going to get hurt, but you're probably not going to end up in some kind of life-threatening situation. So those kinds of things we just say, like, you should probably go with somebody so that someone can call for help or something if they need it, but you can still ride your bike, you can still walk to school, you can still play soccer, you can still do all of those things. Activity restrictions are, of course, also going to apply to any teenager who's old enough to drive or have a learner's permit. Unfortunately, that's going to be a no. And laws governing how you handle this driving restriction vary state by state. So you just have to know what to do where you practice. Well, thanks so much to Jason and Jan for this really thorough and fantastic review of unprovoked seizures in children. And with that, can I get a beat again? Just maybe a a little bit of bass here, too. And then how about some, I don't know, some saxophone? (laughs) Just playing with you guys. So cool. Aware, 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 describe the motor movement. Describe the motor movement. We recently got a listener question regarding complications occurring after cardiac ablation therapy. Now, some of this overlaps with a segment we recently did in October on complications after a Watchman procedure, but the overlap isn't 100%. So we've got Dr. Susie Demeester back on to dive in. From the city with the last remaining blockbuster in the world. A what? Bend, Oregon. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Cardiovascular Corner. With your host, Dr. Susie Demeester. Susie, thanks for taking this on. Swami, thanks as always for having me. I think this is a great topic. I mean, we need to be ready to see these types of patients in the ED. Because most of the time when we're talking ablation, we're talking about ablation for atrial fibrillation. And AFib, it's the most common dysrhythmia in the world. And these interventional procedures like the Watchman procedure, like ablations, they've really taken off in the past two decades. And when patients have those complications, they're going to come to us. They're not going to go to the cardiologist's office. And you know this as well as I do. It's invariably that they get their ablation done on a Friday, they get their complication on Saturday, and the cardiologist's office isn't open, but I'm always open. So the patient shows up in our emergency department, and now we're trying to figure out what is going on, what is this complication. I think we probably first have to understand what's actually being done. What is being done in a typical ablation procedure? So the goal of ablation is to use temperature to target ectopic foci. They're usually located in the left atrium and near the pulmonary vein. And there's two ways to do this, with fire or with ice. Cue a Robert Frost poem from high school. The world will end in fire, some say in ice. But basically, both methods cause scarring of the myocardial tissue, and they prevent further long-term episodes of atrial fibrillation. So during the procedure, the cardiologist, they're going to access the femoral vein, and then they're going to pass a wire of the device into the right atrium, through the atrial septa, 
and into the left atrium, and then either using heat or cold, they're going to target these ectopic areas, which again are located near the pulmonary vein. And let's get to a little bit of the listener's case. They had a teenage patient who had been ablated for WPW and then presented with atrial fibrillation about 18 hours after the procedure. How common is it to run into a dysrhythmia post-ablation? Before we get to Susie's answer on that one, we've got to drop in with a little bit of clarification here. The listener's question was about an ablation for WPW. We're going to really focus on ablation of atrial fibrillation because it's the more common thing. But actually, the complications are pretty much the same between the two. You're going to see the same complications, whether it's WPW that was ablated or atrial fibrillation that was ablated, with the exception, perhaps, of the final complication that we talk about at the end. Dysrhythmia after ablation, it's going to be pretty common. It's mainly going to be atrial in origin. These patients are often really disappointed to come back and see you in this rhythm that they have been trying to, you know, have cured with this procedure. But it's important to reassure them that these short-term dysrhythmias are a result of inflammation, of scarring that occurred during the procedure, and they're not necessarily going to predict long-term outcome. The patient comes in, they've got this atrial tachydysrhythmia. They're obviously frustrated, like you said. For me, does it make a difference in terms of treatment, the fact that they recently had this ablation? If the patient says, I was ablated 12 hours ago, I'm having palpitations, I see their atrial fibrillation, typically I would say 12 hours of AFib, let's cardiovert you out of it. Can I still do that? So our treatment is going to be how we treat AFib in general. So AFib, it's the result of these irritable ectopic foci. Just do what you're going to do. But keep in mind, most of the time, your patient is stable, right? So AFib is not usually a dangerous dysrhythmia, even at rapid rates. So you probably have time to run it by this patient's cardiologist. And most of these patients, they're actually anticoagulated. So a lot of them are anticoagulated long-term. And this anticoagulation, whether it's warfarin or a direct oral anticoagulant, it's not going to be stopped for the procedure. And so you should feel pretty comfortable cardioverting the patient. Furthermore, patients who are undergoing ablation, even if they haven't been on anticoagulants prior to the procedure, are going to be on at least two months of anticoagulation after the procedure. So yes, I think you can feel comfortable cardioverting the patient. But again, I think you have some time to talk to the specialist and see what they feel is maybe the best option. Palpitation is obviously going to be a common presentation. Again, those atrial dysrhythmias. But I remember when I was in residency, I had a woman in her 60s who presented after an AFib ablation with shortness of breath. Now, shortness of breath could be from a dysrhythmia, but there are other things that can cause that as well. What do I need to think about in the post-ablation patient for shortness of breath? Well, let's talk worst first, right? We're in the emergency department. So the first thing I'm going to think about is cardiac tamponade. So it's fairly rare, occurring about 0.2 to 5% of the time. But I would grab my ultrasound probe and take a quick look on any patient, like your patient, who's coming in with some shortness of breath. So perforation of the heart can be caused by a lot of different things. They can be, it can be caused by guide wires, dilators, or even the thermal energy itself from the ablation. And so patients, they can come in tachycardic, they may come in hypotensive, but we all know those classical physical exam findings are not always going to be present. So I think as a rule for us in the emergency department, when we're seeing these patients post-procedure, we need to grab that bedside ultrasound and take a quick look. When these patients come in, shortness of breath, we're going to get the ultrasound. We're going to get the EKG looking for those dysrhythmias. And one of the things you said in there that's really important is that that 
tamponade or the effusion that you see could be the result or most likely is a result of a perforation. And, and knowing that, we should know that we can't necessarily fix this situation. We might be able to temporize it, but the patient's going to need a cardiothoracic surgeon. They're obviously going to need their cardiologist on board as well for definitive management. So we have to be anticipating those steps as well. One of the things that comes up though is how far out of the procedure can tamponade develop? The patient that I saw was about 16, 24 hours after their procedure. Is this mostly an early complication or can we see this late as well? So luckily these effusions, the tamponade, most commonly occurs in the catheterization suite or while the patient is still hospitalized. So that's good for us. However, a more slowly developing effusion can lead to a delayed presentation. So think like one to two weeks after the procedure, probably not more than a month out. But let's also jump back to your patient with the shortness of breath. So we talked about grabbing that bedside echo to look for an effusion. But since I already have the ultrasound probe in my hand, I'm going to also take a quick look at the lungs and make sure we aren't dealing with a pneumothorax. Now that's pretty rare when we're talking in ablation, but when we're talking cardiac procedures, especially procedures that gain access through the IJ, like a pacemaker insertion, that's one thing we really need to think of. And then there's one more big thing we should probably talk about in this patient who is short of breath and who has had a recent cardiac procedure, and in this case, an ablation, and that's going to be symptomatic anemia related to access site bleeding. And this is by far the most common complication when we're talking post-cardiac procedures, and in particular, in patients with femoral access. So we need to take those pants off, even if they're in the hallway, we need to take a look at the groin and make sure we're not missing something like this. And then if we're worried about things like a retroperitoneal hematoma, aneurysm, fistula formation, we're going to want to take the next step and get some imaging like an ultrasound or CT. But I think a good rule of thumb is probably going to be to get a CBC in any of these patients who have had a recent procedure. Patient post-ablation coming in with shortness of breath. We get the EKG looking for the dysrhythmia. We check with our ultrasound, both the lungs as well as the heart looking for effusion, tamponade. We're going to get a CBC looking for anemia. We're going to check the groin looking for either signs that they could have a retroperitoneal bleed, that they could have a fistula, they could have a massive hematoma that's developed there. And the CBC is going to help us there. But some of the other labs that we might see ordered are things like a troponin. Is that something that we should be getting in a patient who is post-ablation? Thinking back to what's happening in this procedure, we are literally freezing or burning myocardium. So we have to expect that the troponin is going to be elevated. And realistically, we're probably not worried about an acute myocardial infarction after one of these procedures. So just expect that troponin is going to be elevated. And if you are planning on admitting the patient and maybe trending it, that might be somehow useful to the cardiologist. But oftentimes, sending that troponin really kind of locks in our disposition pathway. So I think this would be something to talk to our cardiology specialists about. So it's not necessarily not to get the troponin, but to understand that you might see some mild elevations in the absence of an ischemic EKG. It's hard to know exactly what to do with that. But again, trending it might be very useful. We've talked about some of the quote unquote common complications, understanding that none of these are really all that common. But when we were talking about this offline, you mentioned a complication that I had no idea about. I never learned about it, obviously never seen it. And let's get into that last one because it is life-threatening and very rare, but we clearly need to know about it. Yes, a can't-miss diagnosis. 
after an ablation, it's going to be esophageal perforation that can lead to the development of an atrioesophageal fistula. And these are super rare, which is probably why you hadn't heard too much about it or seen it, because they only occur in about 0.1 to 0.25% of the time. But they are super scary. These patients do not do well. And really, any delay in diagnosis is going to dramatically contribute to really bad outcomes. Why are we seeing esophageal fistulas as a complication of ablation? Imagine a cross-section of the left atrium in the thorax. That esophagus is actually millimeters. We're talking like two to three millimeters away from the left atrium and specifically the location of that pulmonary vein. So thermal injury, either hot or cold, often causes esophagitis in these patients about 20% of the time. But if you think about having a deeper injury, that could result in esophageal perforation and eventually fistula formation. Tracheoesophageal fistula just sounds really awful and terrible and scary. Is there something that can help us to figure out if that's what the patient's coming in with? What are they typically going to present with if that's the problem they're having? This is one of those big ones that really needs to be on our radar to at least think about it. The patients are going to present about one to six weeks after ablation. Kind of the average time is a little over two weeks. And most commonly, they're going to have a fever and endure some sort of chest pain or discomfort. They may also complain of dyspnea, odynophagia, hematemesis, melena, nausea, and vomiting. But in addition to these GI and thoracic symptoms, patients can also present with neurologic symptoms from air emboli. And so there have been case reports of strokes, TIAs, seizures, and even just altered mental status. So I think for us in the emergency department, just thinking and considering this diagnosis is going to be the most important thing we can do in determining this patient's outcome. If you're worried, we're going to start resuscitating them as we normally would, and we're going to order a chest CT with IV contrast. Things like x-ray or TEE, those aren't bad ideas, but they are going to miss a significant proportion of these fistulas. What you aren't going to do is allow your patient to go to endoscopy because this can lead to neurologic injury from air emboli. And then once you have that CT, you've confirmed the diagnosis, you're going to make that phone call to your thoracic surgeon because these patients really need emergent operative intervention. The mortality rate without surgery, it's almost 100%. And then in studies looking at GI doing things like stenting, patients just didn't do well when compared to those that were managed surgically. Probably also a good idea to throw antibiotics at them and then just continue stabilizing them while they wait transfer to the operating room. Summary. This really gives us a nice approach to taking care of the patient who's post-ablation coming back to the emergency department. We're going to look for dysrhythmias with the ECG. We're going to drop the pocus on the chest and look at both the lungs for pneumothorax, but most importantly, looking at the heart for signs of tamponade or effusions. We're going to think about blood loss, whether that be a retroperitoneal bleed, the patient's developed a hematoma. We're going to think about the other complications of access. So could they have developed a pseudoaneurysm? Could they have developed a fistula? And then we have to always be wary of that life-threatening diagnosis, the atrioesophageal fistula. And this one's particularly difficult because it can develop one to six weeks after the procedure, almost to the point where you might not be thinking that the procedure has anything to do with that presentation. But chest pain, fever, hematemesis, dark stools, all of these things should make you at least consider this diagnosis and understanding that to make the diagnosis, we're going to need that chest CT and then get your cardiothoracic surgeons on board to take care of that patient. 
Because again, there's not much that we can do. This is going to need a surgical procedure for a fix. Susie, I think this gives us, again, a nice approach to these patients. It makes us feel a little more comfortable taking care of them so we don't have to just run to the phone and wait for our cardiologist to call us back. We can start with some maneuvers to figure out what's going on. It's time for the Ultra Ultra Summary. This was for December EMA, and there was a guest, and it was Brit Guest, and we know Brit Guest because she does the Whoop Whoop conferences and lots of other MRAP stuff. Dear Some Emory. of you don't like me to talk about those things yeah. because you want me to get straight to the paper, and the first yeah. paper is this. Abstract one. The effect of intravenous fluid treatment with a balanced salt solution versus 0.9% saline on mortality in critically ill patients, the basics randomized trial. There was the SMART trial that said balanced salt solutions are better in sick people. Now we've got this study. Over 10,500 patients who were mostly septic, and they found, and this is a better study according to Sanjay, they found no difference between the two groups, except in the subset of traumatic brain injury, where normal saline was better. There is another big study coming called the PLUS study, which is an Australian-New Zealand one. And so the word isn't completely out right now. But if there is a difference between these solutions in sick people, it's not very much and people lose their minds about it, like it makes this huge mortality difference. And it doesn't, so settle down. Abstract 2. Abstract 2 was done by Brit, and it was rapid control of agitation, ketamine in the emergency department, a blinded randomized controlled trial. It was in the Annals of Emergency Medicine. The basic idea here was we took a bunch of people, actually it was only 80 people, the power calculation was for 160, but COVID happened, but you had 40 in each group. They either got a big whack of ketamine, 5 milligrams per kilogram, versus Haldol Midazolam for these agitated psych patients. And they said it worked faster if you gave them ketamine. Five minutes versus 14 minutes. And to me, that is a huge difference. Getting somebody under control in five minutes versus 14 minutes of them flailing around, not good for them, not good for you. And the side effect profile was good. Brit's only concern was, what about after 30 minutes? Because they only looked at a maximum of 30 minutes. Do these people then sort of emerge and then tear the place apart again? So that would have been nice to know. But if you want to get these people sedated fast, this is just another study that says ketamine is faster than the traditional, you know, Haldol, Benzo combo. Abstract four. Because this is emergency medicine, we've got another ketamine paper. And this is ketamine administration for acute painful sickle cell crisis. A randomized controlled trial is from academic emergency medicine. And here is the idea. Let's see if 0.3 milligrams per kilogram of ketamine in a 100 ml bag of saline infused over 30 minutes is as good as 0.1 milligrams per kilogram of morphine in a 100 ml bag of saline infused over 30 minutes and followed for 180 minutes. And what do you think? The answer was they are almost identical in terms of pain control. But, and it's a big but, I like big there was less sort of breakthrough analgesia given to the group that had ketamine. This is very interesting, is it not? This has people excited, does it not? So this is certainly an option that I think you should try. It appeared to be very safe. So if you've got an otherwise healthy uh, patient with sickle cell disease, because that was the group that was looked at here, I think that this is something that you can try out. 0.3 milligrams per kilogram in a bag of saline over 30 minutes was as good as 0.1 milligrams of morphine over 30 minutes. I think very excited. Abstract six. Because this is emergency medicine, this is a third ketamine paper. Only joking, this one is pre-hospital narrow pulse pressure predicts the need for resuscitative thoracotomy and emergent intervention after trauma. In the Journal of Surgical Research, the senior author is Kenji, and basically they ask the question, is a narrow pulse pressure an independent predictor of badness, uh, requiring surgery, requiring thoracotomy? 
Now, I was at USC a very long time, and I can tell you we kind of used it all the time. So if you're hypotensive, oh, that's bad. If you're normotensive, yay. But if you're normotensive with a narrow pulse pressure, there was this feeling that that was you clamping down just before you crashed and burned. And this study, which is quite large, basically said, yeah, that's probably true. If you've got a normotensive trauma patient who's got a narrow pulse pressure, say less than 30 millimeters of mercury, then that suggests perhaps that they're starting to clamp down and they are, you know, more likely to get sick down the road. So just to add it to your armamentarium of your clinical skills, you're looking at a patient, you're making an assessment, you're looking at that blood pressure, they're normotensive. Okay, they're normotensive, but let me just check that uh, pulse pressure. If it's less than 30, maybe uh, it's bad. So uh, just keep that in mind as another potentially useful data point. Abstract 8. Abstract 8 is a paper that is titled Interrater Agreement and Reliability of Burn Size Estimations Between Emergency Physicians and the Burn Unit. This was in the Journal of Burn Care and Research and asked the, the question, how good are the ER docs at burn size estimation compared to the gold standard of the burn surgeon? And I think that's a reasonable gold standard. They should be you know, better than us. And they said in this study that actually we're pretty good, uh, very good. But there were limitations in this study in that it was a single place and the burn unit was in the same place as the ER, so maybe they were chatting to each other because this showed that actually the agreement was very, very good and other studies haven't shown that we're very, very good. And Sanjay and Britt bring up the most important thing is even if we are disagreeing, the key is, is it clinically significant? So if you say 28 and I say 32, does that really matter? What we really care about is that we are not grossly over or underestimating burn size. And this paper says, we're probably not. Abstract 11. Hands up if you like looking in kids' ears. Oh, 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 oh. You there, sir. Please put your hand in. Ah. Filthy liar. <sighs> Nobody likes this. This paper is uh, Abstract 11, Evaluation of Digital Otoscopy in Pediatric Patients, a Prospective Randomized Clinical Trial. And basically, this is a report that says there's this device, you can stick it on your iPhone, or probably on your Android phone, not that you should have an Android. iPhones are better, I'm just saying. But anyway, you stick this thing on there, and you stick it in the kid's ear, and you take a picture of it. And then you go back to your attending and say, this is what the eardrum looks like. And the idea is that this should reduce the number of times you need to go look in an ear, particularly in an academic setting. It might also be useful to put in the chart, and maybe uh, there'd be better integrator agreement between this thing. Unfortunately, this study didn't show that this uh, knocked it out of the ballpark. This particular device that they talk about is not actually made anymore, but there is a couple of them out there. We are seeing more and more of these iPhone-related things, whether it's for looking in eyes or whether it's for looking in ears. And in theory, these things could be very useful. Here's what it looks like. I sent it to the ENT. Here's what it looks like. I sent it to the opto. So I like the concept. This didn't show that it was like remarkably better than just the good old-fashioned way, but the methodology wasn't great. But just so you know, these devices are out there. They are going to get better over time. iPhones are better than Androids. It's well-known. Multiple randomized studies. Uh, dear MRAP. Okay, there's not. How still, do you... Okay. I like my iPhone. These are jokes, right? Abstract 12. Abstract 12, another one. Fascinating. Experience of a smartphone ambulatory EKG clinic for emergency department patients with palpitations, a single center cohort study. So again, if you've got an iPhone, boom, you can have a portable EKG device that you can give to your patients or that will be given to your patients if they're trying to work out what this palpitations or near syncope kind of stuff is caused by. And then when you're having symptoms, you grab this little device. It's Bluetooth usually sunk to your phone. And you put your fingers on it and it'll give you a rhythm strip. Or you can do it from a smartwatch, for example, from your Apple watch. So there are more and more of these out there. And this study said, actually, uh, this actually picked up a significant number of diagnoses which were actionable. 
So they found arrhythmias on these devices that people had themselves that they used when they had symptoms and said, oh, you had a run of VTAC. Oh, you had some AFib. So you're going to see more of these. I have actually had one of these for five years. And I carry it with me when I'm traveling because every time I get on a plane, somebody wants to die. And it's really nice to be able to do a quick rhythm strip. I have it on my phone now, so I can actually take off my watch and put it on people and get some kind of a rhythm strip. But I find it particularly helpful, or at least it de-stresses me knowing I've got some kind of a little EKG device. But you might actually have patients come in with this puppy and say, I had this thing and here is the rhythm and you show, they'll show you on your phone and you'll go, oh, that's why you fell over. Your heart rate's too. That's bad. Abstract 14. Abstract 14 might be, mate, my favorite of the month. And it is Quick Cuts, a comparative study of two tools for ring tourniquet removal, American Journal of Emergency Medicine. So basically what they did here is they said, we can use a spinny device to try and take off that ring. You know, lots of flames, lots of heat. Or we can use this sort of uh, trauma shears, which have a ring cutter at the base of them. That's right. There are trauma shears that have ring cutters at the base of them. And so they took some volunteers and they cut off some rings and they said the trauma shears were way faster and they didn't go and heat up and the people liked them and all was good. So this study, is it great? No, this wasn't a sort of real world situation. This was sort of uh, volunteers who had rings put on. Maybe they were loose. I don't know. But the concept that there are trauma shears with ring cutters on, I mean, that alone is worth the price of admission. That alone, ladies and gentlemen, might take me out of retirement. That alone. Because if you go on and do a Google search, these look really, really cool. And I want a pair just for use at home. But we have run out of time. And they did so many other studies. They did a lot of stuff on COVID. And they did some stuff on oxycodone and acetaminophen versus acetaminophen alone. They did a great study on the initial therapies for bleeding from esophageal viruses, which you do need to know about, but I don't have time to tell you about. They did a study on racial and ethnic disparities in physical restraint use, and uh, they talked about the association of limited English proficiency and increased pediatric emergency department visits. It's just revisits, actually. So there's just too much good stuff. It's the Ultra Ultra Summary. My name's Mel Herbert. Go listen to the whole show. It's really important. Thanks to BritGuest for coming on and, and helping out and getting some new skills. And iPhones, well, they're better than Android. What? Talk to you next month. Again. Unbelievable. What? Uh, you know, dear MRAP, you're supposed to be using generics instead of name brands. So you should be saying smartphone, not iPhone. Dear MRAP, you may have iPhones, but there are lots of Android users. Open the pod bay doors, hell. No, not that kind of Android. A phone. You know what I mean. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Dear MRAP, this mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. Mail call! Jan, it's time for the mailbag. I've got a big bag of letters from the home office in Wakanda, Illinois. Wakanda forever! Jan, let's reach in and grab a letter. Mmm, okay. I got a good one. Letter one. This one is requesting for us to discuss the use of NAC and acetylcysteine in acetaminophen overdose in pregnancy. Great question. So, of course, we went to our tox guru, Sean Nort. Sean, what do you have to say? Nort! <laughs>
All right, Sean, let's talk about knack in pregnancy. Stuart! And uh, just before we get into it, I just wanted to point out that there's, there's kind of two different patient populations here, in my mind anyway. I don't know if you agree, Sean, but there's, there's the woman who's obviously pregnant, who's taken an acetaminophen overdose, and everyone knows she's pregnant, and sort of that's your starting point. But don't forget that we should be doing pregnancy tests on any patient who comes in, any female patient that comes in with an acute overdose, because it's going to influence our subsequent management. So we should sort of start off by saying that. Whether you establish that she's pregnant uh, empirically or by test, that is the starting point. And having said that, you do agree, don't you, Sean? I do, of course, Stuart. So having said that, uh, let's get right into it. How is the treatment of acetaminophen toxicity different once you find out that the patient is pregnant? Well, the short answer is there is no difference, which makes it a lot easier. But there are some things to consider when you're talking about acetaminophen poisoning pregnancy. Probably the most important take-home is start NAC as early as possible because there's less complications to both mom and fetus. Just like in acetaminophen poisoning in general, the earlier you start NAC, generally the better people do. Now, what, just to be precise, what exactly is the risk to the fetus in this context? So the good thing is that we have decades and decades of experience of acetaminophen. We have decades of experience of acetaminophen poisoning in pregnancy, and we have decades of experience using NAC in the treatment of acetaminophen in poisoning in pregnancy. But the good thing is acetaminophen at no point during the pregnancy appears to have any congenital malformations. There is a risk of fetal loss during all trimesters, but particularly in the first, there's a greater risk of spontaneous abortion. But the vast majority of pregnancies go on completely uneventful. So I don't want to overstate that risk. You don't need to talk to people about terminating a pregnancy, and you don't need to necessarily induce pregnancy earlier than you would if it's a late third trimester. But of course, you want to pull in OBGYN to have those discussions. And so just to be clear also, does, does APAP and or NAC cross the placenta? So yes, they do. Both acetaminophen easily crosses the placenta, and so does NAC. So let's talk about acetaminophen. So acetaminophen does cross, and the fetus gets exposed to parent or acetaminophen, the compound. The fetus mostly, like pediatric patients, we learn about sulfation pathway, doesn't make a whole lot of napki, but it does after 18 weeks or about can make napki. But just like an aseptic pregnant woman, the worse mom does, the worse the baby does. So if you keep mom alive and treat her, the baby generally does fine. There are very, very rare cases of mom getting hepatotoxicity and then the baby being born with hepatotoxicity, but that can happen as well. Okay, so most of what you said so far is, is pretty reassuring to me. It's almost as if I didn't know I'd be okay doing the right thing for mom, right? Are there any dosing considerations, though, that I should be aware of if, if I know mom's Yeah, pregnant? so the good thing, again, this makes it real easy. No, so NAC, we talked about acetaminophen crossing the placenta. NAC crosses the placenta. In fact, gynecologists uh, and obstetricians use it to treat chorioaminitis in pregnancy because it's a free radical scavenger. So they have a lot of experience for that indication. From a toxicology standpoint, we have a lot of experience from it. So NAC, the good news is it does cross a placenta. We generally recommend IV because we want to make sure there's no first pass metabolism that we're getting the highest concentrations possible. But your treatment level, if you're going to treat in a non-pregnant person or a pregnant woman, it's exactly the same. And then your IV regimen is exactly the same. Now, there are some differences. Some people will use a one-bag protocol. Some will use a three-bag protocol. But just whatever your local toxicologist or poison center recommends, there's no difference when it comes to pregnant patients. I will have one 
thing, and this applies to all acetaminophen poisonings, when we think about the IV protocol, that's generally a 21-hour protocol, if somebody still has a transaminitis or clinically is not doing well, we will continue that N-acetylcysteine beyond that 21 hours until they either go on and die, have a liver transplant, or in most cases, of course, resolve. And that goes for both pregnant and non-pregnant patients, of course. That right? is absolutely right. Okay, good. So in summary, Sean, any final yeah. summary So thoughts? this is something you'll encounter, but the good news is acetaminophen poisoning is treated exactly the same, so you don't have to remember anything special. Try to get the knack, just like in regular acetaminophen poisoning, started as early as possible. Use the same treatment lines, use the same dosing regimen, and if it's a late pregnancy, pull OBGYN into the discussion. Letter two. Jan, Sean was a popular guy this month because we had another listener request for the discussion of the management of caustic burns, specifically looking at acid burns to the face and body. And again, who better than Sean? So let's hear what Sean's got to say on this one. Thank you to the listener for this great question. And these are devastating injuries when they happen. Caustics to the face and body as a matter of assault, unfortunately, is becoming more commonplace worldwide. But from a management standpoint, there's really no difference than, let's say, an accidental or lab explosion or exposure. And the key when you come to caustics is two things. The higher the concentration and the longer the duration of contact, the worse the damage is done. So there's some key things that you have to do. Once this occurs, the most immediate thing to decrease injury is to get this person into a shower remove all their clothing, and if they're in a home or near a home, just get them into a shower. Unfortunately, a lot of these patients will transport themselves to be brought to the emergency department with ongoing injury going on. So the key is copious amounts of tap water. So if it's a, just a small splash to the eyes, you could do it at the sink, but even with, the, with small exposures, I like to put people in the shower, and this is a poison center thing, you have them go in there, 15, 30 minutes, blink a lot, irrigate their eyes. If it still hurts, just stay in there. But then after about 30 minutes, most people should be able to come out and go to the emergency department. Once you get them to the emergency department, pay close attention to those eyes, get somebody irrigating them. You can use normal saline, you can use lactated ringers, or you can use tap water. And then if all the clothing is not removed, remove it and a good head to toe rolling them looking everywhere because remember these are liquids and they can roll down into creases and to dependent places and people get really bad burns. The limited data that we have on this shows that if you can start irrigation within three to 10 minutes of these exposures, they usually have less injury, less severe burns, less needs for grafts. But to be honest, these are devastating and it's not unusual that people will need grafts. If there is any suggestion of eye injury, Irrigate them until the pH is 7, and then get them to an ophthalmologist. Of course, these are bad burns, and they're going to need to be, if they're extensive, go to a burn center, so touch base with your burn specialist. Things like skin grafts and things are delayed, not for the emergency department. So that's a quick overview. Hope you don't see any of these, and thank you again. So that's the mailbag this month, Swami. Great bunch of letters. Everyone, please keep them coming. Love to hear your feedback. We look forward to next month's mailbag. I'm just postman. The postman. Thank you. Wakanda forever. Wakanda forever. (laughs) 
Mega, mega, mega monster. Like that? <laughs> All right, Jan, we're coming to the close of the show for January 2022, but we still got the mega summary in front of us. Mega summary. And we're going to kick it off with the rural medicine piece. Rural medicine talks. This month's rural medicine piece was kind of brutal. It was a really depressing diagnosis that was acute aortic occlusion. Swami, ever seen a, an aorta just completely occluded, basically no blood flow to the lower half of your body? I've seen it once with a Roboa catheter in place, but otherwise, I don't think this is a, a survivable injury. This is a tough one. Yeah, it's a really tough one. And this was a case of a woman who was found on the floor who was complaining of abdominal and flank pain, along with basically legs that she couldn't move that were completely pulseless. And on bedside ultrasound, they found that she had no flow in her femoral arteries bilaterally. And she ends up getting a CT angio showing that her abdominal aorta was acutely occluded around the level of her renal arteries. And she had clotted off her bowel, one of her kidneys, her legs. I mean, yikes. So this is a very rare but obviously devastating disease with a very high mortality rate. This can happen from thrombosis or some kind of embolism. Or if you happen to have a graft or a stent, having that thing clot off can obviously do this as well. The clinical presentation really depends on exactly where your aorta occludes and the collateral circulation that you happen to have available, but you should think of this diagnosis in any patient with pain and weakness of their bilateral legs, plus or minus acute onset of flank and abdominal pain. And in those cases, if you imagine yourself in that situation with a patient who can't move their legs, it's easy to think that it's maybe a cord injury alone, but in this case, it's actually cord ischemia that's causing the neurologic symptoms. CT angio is your diagnostic test of choice, and it will tell you what the state is of your end organs and how much damage you're looking at. Point-of-care ultrasound can obviously help make the diagnosis early, but management here is very complicated, particularly if you're in the rural setting, because it's very time-critical, and what you can do about it is pretty limited. You could do heparin, analgesia, try to get them to a tertiary center, maybe thrombolysis if it's a distal lesion. So there are some options. Bypass may be another option. Amputation or fasciotomy may be needed. But palliative care may be the appropriate step depending on how advanced the disease is. So pain relief in that case would be very, very important. The mortality is a third to a half of patients and the morbidity rates are even higher. And in this particular case, unfortunately, despite vascular surgery getting involved due to the duration and the degree of ischemia, this was considered non-survivable. And this patient died with palliative care in the emergency department some hours later. Oh, what an awful case. And it's really a terrible thing. But I think really what we get from this is some tips on how to pick it up, especially the patient presents a little bit earlier. And again, the power of ultrasound to give us that diagnosis a little bit earlier so that we can go down the right pathway instead of, you know, aiming for that MRI for the spine, we can go after the belly, find that aorta that's occluded. And hopefully this gives people a little bit of something to think about in those patients so that we can get to that diagnosis sooner and possibly have some salvageable cases. Really tough one, though. Absolutely. This month in the critical care mailbag, something you alluded to in our intro, I got to talk with Weingart about stopping cardiac arrest or when to stop cardiac arrest. And I think this is really tough because we all do it differently. We all have these different variations in practice of how long we'll run the code and when we'll call the code. There were a couple of points that I thought were really important that Scott tried to hammer home. One of those points is that there's no single factor that dictates when the cardiac arrest should be terminated, and rather it's a combination of factors that can inform that decision. The second key point is that under the best of circumstances, patients who suffer cardiac arrest will have a lower quality of life after the arrest if they survive than they did beforehand. So if the patient was already 
pretty compromised in terms of what they could do, they're not going to be any better after that cardiac arrest, no matter how good a job you do in running it. And we went through a bunch of different things, the importance of the initial cardiac rhythm, how patients with VF or VT are more likely to have a better outcome, whereas those with PEA are less likely to have a good outcome. And one of the things that we really focused in on was the time of arrest and how good a neurologic outcome you'll get. Scott basically said that if the arrest has been going on for more than 45 to 55 minutes, even with good CPR, it's extremely unlikely that you're going to get a good neurologic outcome. And while that's not a hard and fast rule, it gives us a little bit of a guideline to say, you know, this patient's been down for 45 minutes or 50 minutes. The chance of me getting a good outcome is so low. Maybe this is the time that we should stop. Of course, that is changed if you have interventions like ECMO available to you, where you can go through more prolonged arrest and still have a good outcome because you've got good forward flow to the brain. We talked about the role of end-tidal CO2, how to use arterial lines, the fact that a potassium level can be useful in the decision of when to stop the arrest, but that there's not a lot of how to use that severe hyperkalemia in the standard cardiac arrest patient. It's more useful in the hypothermia patient. So we really did go through a lot of different things, but ultimately each of us has to take all of these things into account, look at the patient in front of us and determine whether there's any chance of really getting a meaningful outcome. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, the fact that we all make individual decisions in these cases, taking in all of these factors. But, you know, these are cases where I feel like we start off a resuscitation with the intention of doing good, but we can transition to a place where we're really doing harm if we're continuing resuscitation to a patient who's going to be, you know, neurologically devastated, extremely disabled, et cetera. And so, you know, when that transition happens is, is really unclear. I thought kind of going through the objective things that we can consider and should think about was really helpful. And next time I have a recess, I'll definitely be thinking about these pieces and that information that I should be seeking. Focal or generalized? Right, Jan, something a little bit less morbid was Jason Woods and Jan Martin talking about unprovoked seizures in children. And this was a two-parter. This was a two-parter. And Jason Woods interviews Jan Martin, who's a pediatric neurologist. And it was really a great piece just kind of starting off with definitions and terms, how we describe seizures, how pediatric neurologists want us to describe seizures, probably how you learned it in medical school and what has changed since then. The current preferred terminology when you're describing a seizure is to say if it was focal, meaning that it was coming from one part of the brain, versus generalized, meaning that it was coming from the whole brain at once, whether the patient lost awareness or not, which leads to descriptions like focal aware seizure or focal unaware seizure. And then you want to figure out what type of motor features they have. So is it tonic-clonic? Is it myoclonic jerks? Those are kind of different examples of how they want you to describe it. So it's a little bit more plain language and less technical language, which I think is helpful to the neurologist to know exactly what they're dealing with. In the case of babies and toddlers, these are the most common pediatric groups where we see seizure mimics. And they talked about a couple of those. Breath-holding spells, which are very common. It turns out you can have a seizure after a breath-holding spell, which makes the distinction between the two a little bit challenging. And so, and then they kind of move on to the workup of the first-time unprovoked non-febrile seizure in a child. And one of the big questions there is whether the child has recovered to their baseline by behavior and their neuro exam. If they have recovered to their baseline, you can defer a lot of the workup to the outpatient setting. And if they haven't, then they kind of need to be admitted. So think of it that way in terms of returning to baseline. If they do need a workup, what do they need? Do they need an LP, an EEG, or an MRI? They call that the neurology trifecta, which I really enjoyed. 
And the question about LP, I think everyone would agree that if it was a child less than six months old, that an LP would be indicated because the physical exam is not that reliable to rule out a CNS infection. When you get to the six to 12 month age range, it's a little more gray. There are varying opinions on that. And older than that, we can really count more on the objective signs of infection like fever, altered mental status, multiple seizures, rash, other signs that the kid has an infection. What about MRI? Mostly if you think about why we would be doing an MRI, we're trying to rule out a tumor. So the vast majority of the time, it wouldn't change anything we do in that moment. So again, if they've returned to baseline, that can be deferred to an outpatient. What about EEG? Not super helpful or obtainable in the emergency department, of course, unless you think someone is in status. Otherwise, that can also be deferred as an outpatient. But what was interesting that I didn't know is that after a kid's had a seizure, the first one to two days afterwards, the EEG will actually still look a little bit abnormal, although nonspecific. So actually, that EEG shouldn't be done for at least one to two weeks after they've had that seizure event. What about medications? If they've had one seizure, the risk of having another one is kind of in the 40 to 45% range. So that means more than half the time they won't have another one. So they do not recommend starting patients on anti-epileptic drugs, which have their side effects, of course. If you've had a second seizure, that risk of now recurrent seizures goes up to 80%. So that is a point where they would recommend an anti-epileptic be started. And then in terms of discharge instructions, this was important. There are some activity restrictions. And they really say, you know, you got to use common sense. Think about things where like if the kid had a seizure, you know, what would happen to them? So pools are a big safety risk. Certainly swimming is a big one. Baths, you know, bathtub can't do that alone without 100% supervision. So showers would be recommended for older kids. Careful with going up to heights. They mentioned that, you know, with teenagers, they, they mentioned that. But otherwise, most regular activities would be okay. A bicycle with a helmet would probably be okay. You should probably go with someone just in case. But certainly if you're in the older teenage years, driving would be a no. Good review of all things we need to know. And I think those discharge instructions are really important because even if we get to the point of feeling comfortable sending the patient home, we want to give good advice on what to avoid, what not to do, and what is okay to do. I, I love this piece because it was very practical, Jan. That's why it was so good. It was practical information we can use at the bedside. Amol Matu. In Cardiology Corner this month, I got to chat with Amol about post-MI dysrhythmias. Something that actually we've had a couple of listeners ask about, and we get into a number of different ventricular dysrhythmias, talking about ventricular tachycardia, non-sustained monomorphic VT, not much to do for. Sustained monomorphic VT, on the other hand, we should be looking to do something. Many of those patients with sustained monomorphic VT, that's from a myocardial scar, not from acute myocardial ischemia. And we can use things like lidocaine or amiodarone or even procainamide in those cases. For polymorphic VT, and this is polymorphic VT that's not torsad, it's not associated with a prolonged QTC, that is a sign of cardiac ischemia underlying. Obviously, if the patient is unstable, as in the monomorphic VT1, if they're unstable, give them electricity. If they're stable, we can reach for an antidysrhythmic. Either lidocaine or amiodarone would be reasonable. And in this case, almost specifically prefers amiodarone over procainamide because amiodarone has some intrinsic beta blocking properties that can be very valuable. We talk about VF. VF's the easy one. Just defibrillate them. Assume that it is a cardiac cause and it's an ischemic cause and get that treated. And then we also got into the accelerated idioventricular rhythm. One of these rhythms that the classic teaching is, oh, well, you had a patient who had an MI. Now they have AIVR. Well, that's a reperfusion rhythm. Good job. You have done the right thing. And the patient is reperfusing their vessels, but almost says, hold on a second. It's not that simple. 
those patients with AIVR, that could be ongoing ischemia, especially if they haven't gone for a reperfusion strategy already. And he relates this fact that in his institution, if you have AIVR in a patient who you're worried about ACS, that is a trigger to go to the cath lab. His cardiologists know that that is an ischemic rhythm and they need to take them for reperfusion. So that was a little bit of a new piece of learning for me. And actually, I almost said he was kind of surprised to hear it as well. This is a nice little piece wrapping up all of these different ventricular dysrhythmias that you might encounter. We dip a little bit into the supraventricular dysrhythmias, but the honest truth is they don't commonly occur in ACS. So most of the time we're focused on VT, VF, and then now that AIVR, something to think about. I thought this was a good piece. You know, if you work in a place with an aggressive cath lab, I hadn't thought about this stuff in a while, you know, post-MI dysrhythmias. And I thought this was a great review. We always have to keep it in mind. It's not like these patients with these conditions are not on our radar, whether we're running codes up in the hospital, which is one of the scenarios where you can also come across these types of dysrhythmias, you know, in your CCU with the patient who's just come out of cath, et cetera. So I thought this was a great review. You know, this is one of my weaker areas, remembering all the different rhythms and what goes with them and how the different antiarrhythmics work. So thank you for doing this review with Amal. Tubes! Justin Morgan's turn this month gets into the idea of do we need to put an NG tube into a patient with a small bowel obstruction, which Jan, honestly, when he asked the question, I said, yeah, yeah, you have to. That's what we're all taught. We, you have to put the NG tube in the SBO patient. But Justin kind of gets into the data around this and, and the literature, and there's really not a good literature base to tell us that every SBO needs an NG tube. Now, I think this is a hard one because once you find that SBO, you're going to consult your surgeon or you're going to send them somewhere with surgical consultation, and you're going to be asked to put an NG tube in. This is not something that you can change on the ground immediately in your next shift, but it is something that you can maybe talk to your surgeons about and say, you know, what is the real benefit and who needs one? Who absolutely 100% needs that NG tube and who doesn't? And who maybe we shouldn't be torturing with the NG tube? Because Jan, we know over and over again, the patients tell us that's the procedure they hate the most. Yeah, I, am, I hate NG tubes. You see one put in and you see the poor patient gagging. It's so uncomfortable. What I tend to do if the surgeon sort of reflexively recommends it is I'll often just say, you know, they look pretty good right now. They're not actively vomiting. They're not hugely symptomatic. Is it okay with you if I hold off on the NG tube for now and kind of see if you can sort of dangle that and get them to at least say, yeah, okay, you know, hold off. And then, you know, they get transferred to the ward or the observation area, wherever they're going, and the surgeon can decide to put it in if they really want one. But, you know, they are really useful when a patient's super symptomatic and they're really uncomfortable and vomiting a lot. You know, when your antiemetics aren't working, I think NG tubes do have a role in those cases. And remember that if you do have the rare large bowel obstruction, they're definitely indicated there. So there are some circumstances where they can be helpful. But for the most part, I hate when people just reflexively ask for one, you know, when a patient is just sitting there in your booth looking okay. So, you know, I suggest sometimes like, yeah, maybe we could wait. No, yes, no. Yeah, I always remember this patient from training that I, I saw maybe eight or nine times in my four-year residency because she had recurrent small bowel obstructions. And she would come in and she'd say, I got belly pain, I'm vomiting, it's probably my small bowel obstruction. We would diagnose her with a small bowel obstruction. And then somebody would ask us for an NG tube and she would look at us and say, nope, not going in, not going to happen. She absolutely adamantly refused it. She was like, I will take my chances. And every time I would follow up the note and the next day she got better, maybe two days later, and she went home and she never got an NG tube. So I'm not saying that you can carry that to all patients. And clearly there's a group where the NG tube is necessary, the high grade small bowel obstruction that needs the OR right away. You want to empty that stomach out, make it easier for anesthesiologist, make it better for the patient. But I agree with you that the reflexive placement of an NG tube in all of these patients, probably not necessary. Our next segment was about rib fractures with Ali Raja and Jess Mason. Another one of your favorite segments that you mentioned up top. I love this one too, because 
I think this, this gives us a little bit of a conundrum of how much am I going to do to work these up and, and what do I need to do if I find them? And Ali really goes into the utility of chest x-ray, when to reach for the CT scan, some decision instruments that we have that help us tell whether we need to do more advanced imaging, and some of the ultra low dose CT protocols that can be helpful to not give such a large dose of radiation if you just need to find those rib fractures. But these can be really important to find, especially in older patients, especially those with COPD, where a single rib fracture can really lead to some bad outcomes down the line. So I liked looking at the different modalities and trying to figure out what's the best approach to take care of these patients. Yeah, I was taught in residency never to order rib series. Just a chest x-ray is good enough. And if you're really worried about someone like you mentioned where it's important in an older patient who maybe has comorbidities, you know, in that patient, you're probably getting the CT anyway. So you're going to get the more sensitive test looking for the rib fractures. But in general, I never find myself clicking the box for a rib series. And when I see someone do it, I'm like, no, 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 don't, don't do that. You really, you really don't need it. And, you know, if they have a rib fracture clinically, it's okay to say that they have one. Andrew Petrozoniak. Our resuscitation run right segment with Andrew Petrozoniak was another one of the, my favorite segments this month. I always love talking to Andrew because the way he thinks about how we run things and how we can run them better with a real focus on the human factors that go into those decisions and those pathways, I find that it's a really good thought piece. And again, this is another one where he talks about what they have done at their shop up in Toronto at St. Mike's, looking at how we can run these resuscitations better. And a lot of their work is focused on trauma, but it carries over to the medical side as well. A lot of it is very simple. Recognize the errors that are there before they happen. And we can do that and use that to redesign and redefine the space that we need in order to take care of patients. So Andrew goes through some of the environmental fixes that they ran through, getting 360 degree patient access, optimizing sight lines to vital signs. Jan, this is one of the things that irritates me the most is when I'm at the head of the bed and I can't see the vital signs of the patient. How does that make any sense? The person who's intubating can't see the oxygen saturation. So how we can fix that problem, creating mobile task-based carts to bring the equipment to where we need it, as opposed to us needing to go to the equipment, clearly labeling the equipment to make it easier. And then from there in the environmental stuff, we get into communication, how to make communication better between the team, using things like call and response to make sure that everyone's on the same page, scripting out the beginning of that resuscitation based on what you know on a pre-notification, anticipating some of those key decision points and making it clear of where you want to go. And then one of the things that Andrew always asks, which I think is so important, is the question of what am I missing? And when, he, when I say that he asks that, not internally asking, but asking it to the room. What am I missing? To make sure that everybody has the ability and is empowered to chime in on, hey, you're missing the fact that half of this patient's leg is lying on the floor, right? We want to make sure that we empower our team to feed back to us and tell us things that we need to pay attention to. So I love this piece because it really gives us an insight into the mind of an expert and how they think about these resuscitations. Yeah, it's always worth taking a step back when you have the moment to think about the space where you work, where you see the sickest patients, and how can you make it optimal for those patients? These sort of obvious things about labeling things clearly and preparing for the fact that not all your team members may be used to everything. So making it all very obvious of how we're going to run this code and communicating well, all of this seems so clear when you step back and look at it. It's just so, you know, sometimes it's so challenging to do in the moment, which is why we spend a lot of time talking about it. These are the patients we need to be the most prepared for. So these are really good thought pieces for us all to think about our work environments and maybe a few things that you could change to make your next resuscitation better. Dr. Susie Demeester. And Jan, our last piece was another cardiology piece with Susie Demeester. 
talking about complications after ablation. These ablation procedures are pretty common. There's a lot of them done in our hospital. I'm sure that your guys' hospital is the same. It makes it really important for us to understand what could happen after these procedures. The most common of these is the ablation for atrial fibrillation. And Jan, I can never forget the first time I saw one of these complications with a patient who came back in cardiac tamponade and how sick that patient was. And that's why I wanted Susie to get into this and, and really dive into all the things that we can see. Atrial dysrhythmias are pretty common after an ablation procedure. Sometimes they'll go away, but immediately afterwards we do see them. And it's why these patients are on anticoagulation, even for a period of time after that ablation is done. Many of these patients will come in with shortness of breath. And when you see a patient with shortness of breath after an ablation, you should be jumping in your mind to, could this be a cardiac tamponade? Is there a possibility that either they burn through a wall or that something happened as a reactive pericardial effusion that led to tamponade? And fortunately, we can pretty easily diagnose these now with point-of-care ultrasound, drop that thing on the chest, look for that effusion, look for the collapse of the right atrium and the right ventricle. And while you're there, you can go ahead and look for the pneumothorax, another cause of shortness of breath. Some of these patients will become anemic. Make sure that you're looking to see if they have a hematoma at their puncture site. If they've got any other forms of blood loss, remember that these patients are going to be anticoagulated. And sometimes these patients can suffer from a myocardial infarction. It's pretty uncommon, but it does happen. So we got to keep all of these things in our mind. We talked about atrial perforation, which is a rare complication. It usually is recognized while the patient's still on the table getting their ablation done but sometimes it can present a little bit more delayed. In fact, you can see these up to six weeks after ablation. And the typical symptoms patients are going to have are things like fever and chest pain or dinophagia, hematemesis. These are really desperate emergencies where you need to make the diagnosis quickly and then get your consultants on board to get that patient taken care of. Yeah, the good news is that somebody did that ablation. So there's a doctor out there that's connected to that procedure that cares about the outcome of that patient and, and cares about that patient. So you usually can find help I thought one of the you know, key things here that was mentioned was that these patients will often have elevated troponins since you're kind of burning myocardium when you do these ablations. So you, know, you really can't hang your hat on a troponin. You know, they're coming in with a chest pain, you're going to order the troponin, but the troponin may be relatively meaningless in that regard. So, and and you say, as you mentioned, it's very uncommon for it to actually be an MI. So you have to think a little differently about this type of patient. And I've seen many of these things miss, Jan, the tamponade, the pneumothorax, the symptomatic anemia. There's so many little pitfalls in here to make sure that you're thinking straight. And, and like you said, not anchoring on that troponin that's like mildly elevated, which, you know, like you said, somebody just burned some myocardium. You're going to have a little elevation of troponin. It's a mechanical procedure. Think about mechanical complications. Absolutely. Jan, with that, we are at the end of the month, end of the mega summary. So much good content this month, some cardiology, some pediatric seizures, a little bit of NG tubes, Oops. all of the things that we get into on a daily basis in the emergency department, a great way to kick off January. And, and Jen, honestly, I can't think of a better way to kick off January than getting to chat with you about all this stuff. Yeah, this was a great first episode to kick off 2022. I can't wait to see where this year takes us, Swami. And I agree, I couldn't be more excited to take the journey with you. Let's just keep it going and we'll see you in February. And remember everyone out there to keep doing what you do because what you do matters. Next time on MRAP. I am completely on board with everything that the Naloxone Project is doing, but I'm going to play devil's advocate for just a little bit and just we're just going to pretend I'm not. Really focuses on history, physical exam, 
and an approach to blood cultures, which really wasn't taught to us in school. There's also unilateral limb weakness, dysarthria, headache, or even nausea and vomiting, and those could all throw us off because they make us think of things like food poisoning. I'm over it now. Some of these <laughs> patients, they're, they're really difficult. Um, and you try the normal things and they don't work. So I'm, I'm glad we're going to talk about the complexities of this today. 